Hello, you're listening to Drawn to the Flame, a podcast for fans of Arkham Horror, the card game. We're sometimes fortnightly, we're sometimes monthly. I'm your host, Frank, and today I'm joined by... It's me, Peter. Hello, Frank. Hi, Peter. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm incredibly excited. Uh, Good. Yeah, me too. Me yes. too. <laughs> it's one of the exciting episodes where uh, uh, Maxine, MJ Newman, kindly gives uh, a lot of her time to talk to us about the latest cycle. Yeah, hi. Um, <laughs> Hello. Why are, you, why are you excited? Is there something important going on? <laughs> Sorry, I just kind of chimed right in there. It's fine. Yeah, it's fine. Please do. Please <laughs> do. Yeah. We don't stand on ceremony. We just dive in. Yeah. So uh, a few listeners have actually messaged us about this. We've come to the end of a cycle, the fantastic Innsmouth Conspiracy cycle. I'm just going to get in there with some of the compliments Hell yeah. to start. Um, so yeah, it's becoming a little bit of a tradition on the cast that we invite you on to talk about it. So thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. It's always a pleasure. I love um, being on the, these shows and like talking about the game. Yeah, and I suppose you spend so much time not being allowed to talk right. about what you've created. <laughs> yeah, so to exactly. Actually be able to say, "Yeah, I made it. It was me. These were <laughs> the thoughts I had." Hopefully, yeah. that's worthwhile. Yeah, for sure. So, to listeners, uh, spoiler warning: right now, we're going to be talking all about Innsmouth. We're going to start talking about the player cards and sort of more generally, and we'll do another warning for people when we get to digging into the scenarios. But nothing is off limits. We'll dive in and tear it apart and we'll assume that you've seen everything you can see. So if you've not yet finished playing Innsmouth, you might want to listen to the first part of this. But yeah, this is consider yourself warned. We're going to dive in. And what I'll do is I'll put, as I try often to do, I'll put the little tags in the show notes to warn people when things start. That's very, that's very considerate of you. Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you. The other thing we normally say at the start of these is a reminder to listeners about what you are and aren't allowed to share right. as as lead designer. Can you remind us? Yeah. So um, generally speaking, we don't like to talk about like previous versions of specific cards. And we try to avoid talking about like too much kind of behind the scenes stuff. Um, although obviously everything that I share with you um, today will be fine for me to share. Um, and we can't talk about any future products except for things that we've announced. So like, I can't talk about, you know, the cycle after edge of the earth or anything like that. You know what I mean? That's off limits. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Makes sense. So right. if you're listening to this dear listener and you're thinking, why didn't they just go out and ask Maxine what the next cycle is after edge of the earth? <laughs> right. <laughs> why didn't they ask what the next five years of content of Arkham LCG is? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Incidentally. I mean, we might touch on the, the next cycle, but uh, our old friends over at the Mythos Busters did an interview with, uh, just the other day, Maxine, and they've gone into that in a lot more detail. So if, if that's the kind of gossip you're after, that's probably a good place to go and check. Mm. Yeah. Sorry, Frank, I, did, I have done a shout out for the Mythos Busters very first That's fine, thing. but is it still <laughs> gossip if it's... It, I was going to say, yeah, unfounded gossip, but it's from Maxine's mouth so it's kind of as founded as the gossip can be right <laughs> uh, true true yeah hot gas hot yeah. gas <laughs> exactly <laughs> very cold gas actually yeah <laughs> for me it's like year old uh gas but for you it's brand new <laughs> yeah yeah that's the weird disconnect that we're always at slightly a different time in the game right <laughs> 
Very so true. we like to start these off and just check in how you're feeling about Arkham. Yeah, it's um, it's a really interesting time for Arkham right now because mm. um, obviously we just announced Edge of the Earth, which if you haven't seen the announcement, definitely go check it out. And with that comes like a new era for the game, like a new release model and a new a new way for things to work. So it feels like a big changing point. And then like, of course, obviously that's coupled with lots of other changes with like my work structure. I'm working from home now. So I have like my own little work desk at home. And, you know, the way that quarantine has changed everything with regards to mm-hmm. developing the game, uh, it really does feel like like a new era in more ways than um, I think viewers might know. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. It's exciting because this new era means hopefully like a new golden age, right? Like even more new players getting into the game and like an explosion of popularity, hopefully, right? Fingers crossed. I think my initial reaction to the news, uh, I mean, the other thing I was going to mention very briefly is the FFG Twitter account has been teasing what looks like a new Arkham Files game (laughs) as well. So that's something else (laughs) to get excited for Um, and just... I know, I don't know whether FFG has been burned, but there's been times when there's been an IP they've been working with, and for whatever reason, that hasn't been able to continue. But as mm. far as I'm aware, the Arkham Files, uh, what's the word? Well, IP, I guess, that yeah. you work with here is, it's it's free for you to do whatever you want with. It's, yeah, it's, we, it's, it's we a bit own, more risk-free. <laughs> we own the Arkham Files uh, IP. And mm-hmm. a lot of the inspiration that Arkham Files draws from are from uh, things that are in the public domain. Yeah. So yeah, there's really no danger of that happening with Arkham. In the past, it's usually been like, you know, like just a licensing agreement um, yeah. that like fell through for whatever reason or a contract that we didn't renew. That yeah. kind of thing. Or that, you know, the other party didn't renew. Yeah. Um, but sorry, what I was going to say is that <laughs> the, the, the news in general with, uh, with, with the new cycle... Um, I can see it feels like a, a distribution to suit the game rather than the other way around to an extent. And I think a lot of barriers to new players getting in are knocked down by it as well, which yeah. is, I mean, that, that's just a really, really good thing. Yeah, it's going to be it's going to be really great for retailers, for distributors, for, you know, production, sales, everyone, uh, customers. Yeah, I can't wait. And you design player cards en masse. Anyway, is that right? Right. Yes. We design the player cards as a big group and then we split them up into the individual packs. So it doesn't really change anything there. Yeah. It's not someone's turned up at your desk and said, I need all 200 <laughs> cards right now because, and you're suddenly scrambling like. Right. Yeah. No. You just don't do the chopping up stage. Yeah. Which it does change things a little bit in that before we would sort of introduce some like, I would call them promise cards, right? Like you, you drop them in pack one and you're like. I promise that this card's going to get good. I promise. <laughs> By the end of the cycle, you'll revisit this this pack and you'll be like, oh my God, this card that I wrote off is actually really good. And that's fun because it forces players to reevaluate cards that they've already seen. Mm. That, that yeah. element will be kind of um, different now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but still cool. But at the same time, I think the flip side to that sometimes, I think actually it, this is going to be really relevant for this cycle where the player cards are really strongly themed. And we're, right. we're going to start talking about this in a minute. <laughs> y- you end up with part of the, s- the toolbox you need, which isn't really complete until the last packs come out. 
Yeah. So yeah. even as the last pack comes out, you're like, oh, well, I need to find space for these cards in my deck. <laughs> um, You'll get a more like- complete set. And it's yeah. also really good for like when you're leveling up your character the first time after receiving mm-hmm. the box, you'll have a lot more options. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You'll be less reliant on like the older cards in your collection. Before we get into it, I should also mention that um, if you're wondering why my voice sounds fucked up, it's because I <laughs> definitely was sick um, last night and a little bit of this morning. So my voice is a little <sighs> right now. Absolutely You're a fine. Real hero for still and doing apo- the show as well. Thank apologies, you. <laughs> apologies for cursing. No, you're the hero for um, dealing with me sleeping through our original engagement um, <laughs> completely, um, like drooling on my pillow, like fully unconscious. So, <laughs> if you don't tell the listener, we won't. <laughs> I already did. <laughs> yeah. the, the other thing that struck me as well about when you were describing working from home and like what what that's like is yeah. it really reminded me that sometimes the way you've talked about the way uh, scenarios have come to life, it has felt so collaborative, like yeah. someone coming over to your desk and saying, well, what about this? Or, you know, you running through with the idea for Snatcher <laughs> and saying, can we put these on cards? Yeah. And, and maybe that's just that they're the stories that are sort of dramatic to tell. And the story where it's just you at your desk coming up with something doesn't have the same payoff. But yeah, Yeah. I I wonder if also like designing in physical isolation feels different from being able to... Yeah, it's a very different vibe. Very different Mm. vibe. FFG is filled with creative and talented people. And being in that environment, like being in the same room with them, is it's such a good environment for stirring up ideas and creativity and I'm going to really miss that because, like, we're still connected, obviously. Like, we can call each other anytime and we can talk on chat. And we do all the time, basically, um, like, 24-7. But, like, it's just a very different vibe when I'm sitting at mm-hmm. home. It's a bit more relaxing, maybe, because <laughs> yeah. the office can be a little chaotic. But it's um, there's an energy that is lost when working from home. So, yeah, I'll miss it. I think I'm probably the the person in the office who's most, like, attached to the office, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. I think most of the other people in the department are like, oh, thank goodness. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. There's always one. (laughs) (laughs) So I suppose before we go dive into player cards as well, the other thing we got in Innsmouth was a cardboard insert. And again, knowing about Edge of the Earth, there's that sheds more light on, you know, what you can put in a box for... uh, a deluxe right. or for a campaign because you're getting a bigger box. But just thinking about Innsmouth here, at, at what point in the design process did you decide we're going to have a cardboard insert? Right. Um, so we before we even start working on any design work, we, we drop like a vision document for every product that we make. And we submit mm-hmm. that to executives and management and etc. And everybody else in the department for that reason. And um, they'll take a look at it and they'll say like, not so much like, yes, we can do this or yeah, or no, we can't do this, but like raise concerns, bring up questions, try to like hone our ideas so that we know what we want to do. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And very early on in the game's life cycle, I remember me and Nate brainstorming like, oh, the cool thing about chaos tokens is that we can make new chaos tokens in the future. You know what I mean? Like that yeah. was like one of the ideas that we kind of latched onto. And for the first few years of the game's lifetime, it was like, we, we can do that later, though. Like, we don't have to do it right now. We'll do it later. So with Innsmouth, it finally became like, okay, I think now is the time. 
you know, like now is the time to finally introduce these new tokens. And it came mostly because like in the previous expansions, I already had like really solid ideas, some of which were really complex and we don't want to like overload too much complexity at once. Right. Like mm-hmm. if the dream eaters had had myriad and bonded and bless and curse, it would have been like way too much, yeah. you know? <laughs> yeah. So for Innsmouth, it was like bless and curse. Let's do it like full ham, you know? And uh, yeah, just, I think it was, it, I think it was the right time for it. And then as part of that, it was like, well, if we're going to do, if we're going to introduce punch, uh, punch board, we might as well do, you know, more than just that, right? Like we've got the opportunity to add more stuff. So that's when we came up with flood tokens and key tokens. Um, key is basically being based off of the, then having just released for the greater good, um, scenario yeah. that, that used the chaos tokens <laughs> as I, I was about, yeah, yeah, I was about to say that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The key, the keys are wild because they're the thing. It, 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 I didn't think it would change the feel of the scenarios that much, but it really does. I, I, I absolutely love the key tokens. They seem like such a small addition, but they're so much fun. Yeah, they're really cool. I, you know, the, the, I, obviously there's always going to be things I wish I had included in the core set, but that's definitely one of them because it, it introduces like this sort of, Resident Evil style, like progression through a scenario where you can like, oh, you can't go here until you find the blue key. And then you have to go like find the blue key and then you can go back. So it adds like that element of revisiting locations. Mm-hmm. Um, and then for some, lo- for some scenarios, it's, they're used in a totally different way. Like they're very flexible, which is cool. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, that they feel flexible mechanically, but they also feel flexible narratively. Yeah. Yeah. It was just such yeah. a lovely, again, when I thought about keys, I went straight to, well, you'll need them to open doors. But then actually, one of the things that I've enjoyed the most about Innsmouth is those little pull-out boxes that tell you what the key is. <laughs> I was about yeah. to say that as well, Fran. That's yeah. so That's good, really cool. yeah. Like, what did you find? What is the blue key? Oh, it's an ossified piece of a tentacle, and you're like, oh. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I'll stick that in my exactly. pocket. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Maybe I don't take this one. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I enjoy that as well. And and you mentioned that, you know, from the core set, you had this idea of adding new chaos to- tokens. Um, so can you tell us a little bit more about what you felt the new token needed to, what we've put, what questions you felt it needed to answer? You know, what, mm. what was your, what was your benchmark for what a new token would be like to compete with Skull, Cultist, right, Tablet? Right. Yeah. Um, so I wouldn't, I don't know if I'd classify it as a need per se, because um, mm-hmm. obviously... Uh, after five cycles of not having new tokens, it's pretty clear that the chaos bag that we currently have is, you know, pretty dang good. Works pretty well. Mm, um, yeah. But that being said, there were some things that I wanted to do. One thing was like, I wanted to introduce tokens that would shake up the probability, include an element of unpredictability so that you're like, you're no longer like, okay, I'm two up. That means I have exactly this percentage chance of success. You know what I mean? Yeah. Now you have these curse, even if you have one curse token in there, it's like, well, now the probability is just actually difficult to calculate. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I can't just like plug it into a calculator and like know the exact probability anymore. It's a lot more, um, like, how do I say it? It's like disguised complexity, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cause like, if you try to wrap your head around the actual probability of I've got five blessed tokens and five cast, uh, curse tokens and I am three up on a test. It's, you're just not going to attempt it. You're not even going to bother yeah. looking up that probability. And I think that's good for the game. Because I think that the game is more fun when you're like, okay, this feels like a good number. 
you know? Mm-hmm. And I and not like I'm exactly seventy-two percent chance of success, you know? So mm. that was one that was one um one goal. And another goal was um creating a sort of group dynamic where because uh, in previous Arkham games, you were blessed or cursed, like, independently of one another, right? Yeah. Um, like, one person could become cursed and another person could become blessed. But because the chaos, uh, the nature of the chaos bag makes it so that that's sort of impossible to do in this game. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I sort of, instead of, like, working around that and trying to find a way to do it, I just embraced that and was like, no, let's do, like, a cool group dynamic where if I make a terrible pact and I throw three curse tokens in the bag. Everyone else at the table's like, Oh, come on. Why do you have to do that? You know, now there's three <laughs> curse tokens in the bag because that feels like what would happen. You know, that's like a yeah. cool dynamic. And likewise, if you play like a support character who's blessing the bag a lot, like that feels like you're boosting everybody's morale, you know, like you're mm-hmm. acting like a support character. So that's cool. I, I saw, I think, was it on stream where people were, would- Donating money to charity for blessing curse tokens. <laughs> yeah, and they could put I did like that. That put, was cool. put notes on the tokens as well, so you know exactly <laughs> who it was who blessed or cursed the bag. Uh, and, that's really and cool. That's, it feels like exactly what you said, you know. Yeah, it's like as you put that like, curse, and then the second curse, you like shake your fist at the rogue player. <laughs> Damn <Yeah>. you! <laughs> right, or you build, or what's really cool about it is you can build your decks with some kind of like cohesion, some kind of strategy. Um, in playtesting, for example, I had a Trish deck that was very curse heavy. Like I would throw mm-hmm. curse tokens in the bag. And Jeremy had a Dexter deck that was taking advantage of those curse tokens. So it felt mm-hmm. like there was a synergy there. And that's really cool. I like it when two or three players can sit down and make their decks in such a way that they, they like, you know, are like playing volleyball, you know? Mm-hmm. Like I bump yeah. and then you and then you set and then spike like yeah yeah Fr- Frank yeah. and I did that but we, we played with Trish and uh, Jacqueline so Jacqueline was able to even fish for curse nice. tokens yeah absolutely <laughs> oh no that's a, that's a really good yeah that's a solid strat I think the Dexter benefit is you have access to rogue cards too yeah but yeah Jacqueline's great in this set yeah and that idea of that what on the face of it is oh they're just more tokens to put in the bag. As Peter and I have really explored them, we've really felt like they've actually rippled through and affected all sorts of different aspects of the game, whether that's bag mathematics or deck building or team composition. Mm-hmm. You know, even that might change where you're like, well, I could play this investigator, you know, I could play Mark, but if I play Tommy instead, I'll get access to Survivor so I can add more Bless that way or whatever it is, you know, it sort of can shake things up in, in unexpected ways in that way, I suppose. Yeah, and... um, uh. What was I going to say? <laughs> I totally lost my train of thought. <laughs> oh, and the, the other cool thing is, because it's like almost entirely contained in the player cards, you can choose to ignore them if you don't like them. You know, you can just mm-hmm. like yeah. play without them. And mm-hmm. they're not just like in the bag permanently now, you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, absolutely. And it, it's been really fascinating watching across the community how people have engaged with the tokens. You know, there are some people who are saying, well, I've I've run a couple of the cards, but... All it seems to do is that I don't pass tests as well as I wanted to <laughs> or whatever it is. And then there's other people who've gone full everything, four player oh, yeah. teams. We're going to throw everything in and kind <laughs> of <laughs> and everything in between. Right. To have that freedom with something new that it's not just everyone has to try the new hotness in exactly the same way. Is really yeah. Exciting. Yeah. We, we wanted to make sure that there was enough synergy there that if you did go ham, like you're rewarded for it. But also like the cards that do 
Bless and Curse on their own are fine. Like, you can just run Keep Faith in a deck, and it's fine. Like, it's good. Yeah. You can mm-hmm. just run, like, Promise of Power in a in a deck, and it's fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, Promise of Power, Faustian Bargain. It's like, mm-hmm. these are good cards. <laughs> yeah. Deep Knowledge. You can even go one or the other as well. If you don't want right. to mess with Bless, you can just... Uh, what's a rhyme for Curse that works with that? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but but yeah, because I, 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 I personally find Curse more engaging because I always like the it's like playing black and magic um I like the trade-off uh I've something bad's happened but it's reduced the cost of me doing something so exactly like I say like deep knowledge and um Faustian bargain and um, those are cards I love it's I similar to like. the uh <laughs> the doomed cards in Lord of the Rings if you've played that mm-hmm. yeah 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 and doomed I mean the fascinating thing about doomed that I, I I didn't play Lord of the Rings well enough to really get into it. Doomed didn't have like a doomed payoff, right? I suppose there was stuff um, if your threat was forty. Yeah, or there higher. Was, there was some. Yeah, there are the Valor cards that reward Valor, you if yeah. your threat is forty or harder. And then like later on, we added Saruman, whose like whole thing was he liked playing doomed cards. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah. So you have the payoff there in the way that yeah, I feel like Curse would be fun if it was just get a good thing now for you might see these curse tokens later which would be a shame but what's really kind of brings it to life is that then you get all the other investigators who are like but if i see those curse cards it might <laughs> actively be good you know whether yeah. we're reducing the cost of a card or dealing damage or whatever it is yeah turn it into a plus one so did did the idea for uh, bless and curse come and then following that you you uh, started to develop player cards that triggered off those uh, yeah. Or was the whole well, thing just one one cohesive whole? I mean, we designed what the Bless and Curse tokens would do. Originally, they were actually pretty different from the version that, that you play with. And we built, like, a, a small suite of cards to go along with them so that we would know, like, you know, how often are they getting added to the bag? And what ways around them do the different classes have, you know? But, uh, yeah, I would say it was mostly simultaneous. Yeah, and you, you mentioned the factions there. I wonder about how right. much, at what point did you divide up? Because, well, the fascinating thing is we've just done our Bless and Curse episodes on the cast. Mm. And as I was like writing down all the cards, you know, I thought of Rogue as being squarely in the Curse pool. But right. they have quite a few cards that react to Bless as well, or, you know, add Bless, but it's not the main thing they do, like the Priest of Two Fates. Right, yeah. So I was going to say, how much did you divide Bless and Curse along faction lines? But I want to caveat that in a slightly blurry way, I guess. <laughs> well, I I mean, so basically we we did split them. Like, um, each class would have, like, a specialty. But mm-hmm. then there's cards that blur the lines, right? Mm, yeah. And, um, and also, like, what those specialties were changed throughout development. Like, some of them did. Like, um, Seekers were always all about curses. And Guardians were always all about blesses. But the other three were a little more mutable and they kind of changed and they were a bit more blurry. And so we had like a set theme for them in the end, but there were also some cards in each that blurred the line, like Priest of Two Faiths. And I think that's a good thing because they're designed for like specific investigators, right? Mm. Who might want to take those cards because they're going for like, you know, a different strategy than like the, the traditional full rogue curse strategy. You know? Yeah. 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 
I think it's important that like a color pie isn't a hundred percent rigid and mm-hmm. that there's some flexibility there. Yeah, and for me, of course, the thing that is coming up is that this game is about investigators rather than about factions. Yeah. So yeah. because most investigators have access to at least a couple of factions, or more investigators do than don't, that right. that immediately opens up combinations that you you can't be rigid anyway. Yeah, like you could do a blessed Leo Anderson mm. and throw Priest of Two Faiths in that deck and just yeah. use it for the two blessed tokens. Um, yeah. Yeah. Guess what deck is on my table right now? Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, awesome. Yeah, yeah. I'm doing like false covenants and canceling curses if I see curses. Nice. Oh, that's great. So, yeah, I take him as he's kind of gruff, no nonsense Leo who doesn't believe in any of that stuff. That's, yeah, <laughs> that's my <laughs> head cannon for for what's going on. That's yeah. cool. So like yeah, that. once you realize you're adding the tokens and you're going to add lots of bless and curse cards to this cycle. And this, because of the reality of just having the punch board for this cycle, you've got to cram them in. What was the balancing act like of including cards that don't interact with Bless and Curse versus right. those that do? Yeah, that was tough because like, um, we didn't really know how players would receive it. I mean, we knew how the playtesters received it and we knew how we liked it. But mm. we didn't want it to just be 100% every card in this set is Bless and Curse because if it was, then... The people who didn't really care for Bless and Cursed um, would feel rather put out, I think. So yeah, we introduced we we I I would say it was split pretty fifty fifty, um, maybe a little mm-hmm. bit more in favor of Bless and Curse, like 60-40, something like that. Yeah, so that way, you know, there's still something in the set for you if you're not really into if you just want like traditional rogue stuff or traditional guardian stuff. There's stuff in there for that. Um, but we also knew that like we weren't gonna do Bless and Curse again immediately after this, so. This is like the one time that we have to really do as many Bless and Curse designs as we can and like fit them in, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Like yeah. you you really want, particularly with that idea of the payoff cards that right. know, fulfill exactly. those promises, like you mentioned. The you high really level need ones. To, yeah, kind of make sure that they land, don't you? Because this is your chance to do that. Right. And it's not necessarily our only chance. Like we can always do them again later, but we always like to alternate mechanics and like not immediately repeat them because we want to look at the reception first, you know? Yeah, yeah. The, the life cycle is such that we're always working so far ahead that it's hard to pivot, you know? Mm, yeah, yeah. So when we found that people really liked the, the Blessing Curse cards, we were like, oh, awesome. Okay, that's great. But, you know, we're already like way past that <laughs> in development. <laughs> yeah. yeah, big open that Blessing Curse 2.0 document that you... Right. About keeping, yeah. Are there any, this is always the trickiest question, are there any player cards in the cycle you're particularly proud of? Yes. There's quite a few. I think I think it's pretty well known at this point that my favorite card in the cycle is uh, Gish, the rogue card. Mm-hmm. I adore that card. <laughs> <laughs> that was one of those cards that I, when Nate was reviewing the set, because um, Nate looks at every product that we make. Um, that's like his mm. job. Um, and when Nate was reviewing the set, he was like, um, this seems a little slippery. Um, or like, I forget the exact word he used. He used a word that was like, basically means like, I'm not 100% sure that this like, is like, well enough defined in the rules of the game. But like, it's really cool. You know, but like, yeah. it's, it's really, really, really cool. So maybe just like do it anyway. 
time warp as well. Yeah, a time warp is a hundred percent that kind of card where it's like <laughs> I'm, you know, reasonably certain that the the rules don't actually support this card, but you know what? It's too cool not to do. Is my we, line of thinking. Are we committing to visiting people's houses to make sure they uphold a promise in the <laughs> games? That they, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, it helps that it's a cooperative game. If it was a competitive Absolutely. game with like tournaments and, and very official looking things, we might have to do a lot more extensive rulings and we would have to make sure that the card operates within the framework of the game a lot more closely. But because it's a cooperative game, I think um, it works fine. Um, Time Warp is especially like that. Gash is actually not that bad. It's just like one of those cards is like the templating is something we've mm-hmm. never done before. You know, make make a promise using the following format. It's like, what? <laughs> it's very cool. Mm. I like that card a lot. When we when we looked at that set, uh, is that, was that in the second last pack, is it? Um, was it I believe so. Se- yeah, I think them? so. I think it's in the layer of Dagon. Yeah, we we would we looked at it and we're like, well, there's going to be like a certain subset of player who absolutely adores this kind of card, right? And mm-hmm. I think there's quite a few rogue cards because you've got the lucky penny as well. Yeah, enlighten the fog. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and 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 the lucky dice, um, and yeah. the, the eye of the gin as well, <laughs> which are all just like really good fun, fun cards to use. I think. Yeah, I like the lucky penny. That's another one that's like, I um unabashedly dislike flip a coin sort of effects <laughs> so i and then when i designed that i remember jeremy and a couple other people in the department being like don't you hate this <laughs> like did you you made this and i'm like it's so perfect it's a penny come on yeah like we have yeah. to flip a coin it's perfect. absolutely on the nose yeah <laughs> right yeah exactly um <laughs> the art yeah, i love so, the art on that card as well yeah, yeah, I, I love that. This, again, when we looked at it, it looks like a like a Magic Gathering card or something like that. It's got a that real kind yeah, of it does. Yeah. It's got like a it. pirate doubloon sort of feel to it. Yeah. Mm. I also really like the the Guardian cards that have the payoff for, like the high-level Guardian cards like Nephthys and Holy Spear and Hollow and stuff like that. Those are mm. cool. Yeah. I'm, I was really excited about Nephthys when I even saw her in the card <laughs> fan announcement and yeah all Nephthys three of really those cool. are just kind of I suppose you want those big explosive moments if you're putting in a lot of effort to put a lot of blessing in the bag you, right. want, you want the payoff to feel like a boom particularly the holy spear that sort of turns blessed tokens into ammo <laughs> charges of the spear it's like right. yeah it's funny, we put as well you, uh, cards you feel are particularly key to the game going forwards. And as I was thinking about that as we were writing it, it's also this fascinating thing that obviously Sister Mary has Bless as her thing. So I suppose one of the challenges of you putting the set together is there need to be enough cards that make Mary viable right. for the future of the game, right? Like if there isn't Bless in the next pack... <laughs> You still, <laughs> that means no cards for Mary. Well, I hope thing. that, yeah. I think that with Mary, I hope that just the ability to get free blessed tokens over the course of a game is, mm-hmm. I mean, it might not be enough by itself, but you can couple that with a few more blessed cards. And then from there on, you're just like a cool guardian mystic with high willpower who can do mystical mm-hmm. things and guardian things. And that's neat. So I think she's got a fun niche, even if you don't go 100% full ham on the Blessing. Um, mm. Especially in like a three or four player group where the Blessings can help everybody. Yeah. 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 Well, and the lovely thing is that you can 
devote no space in your deck to adding Bless to the bag. And right, she's still if you want to. Perfect. She's still she's still viable, yeah. But I think that, like, as far as cards that are key to the game, I actually think that this cycle, more than any other cycle, is pretty self-contained, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, there's nothing that pops out to me. Um, like, the Covenants are really key to the Bless Curse strategy. If you're running Bless and Curse, like, there's a lot of key cards, like Twist of Fate and... Or is it Twist of... What's it called? Um... Tempt, tempt, tempt fate. Tempt fate. Tempt fate. Yeah. Yes, I really like that card. Actually, I think it's a it's a yeah, that card's great. Card. That's a very uh, key bless curse card. But I don't think there are any cards in just like you know in the factions normally that are like key moving forward. They're just like good cards. This is what I was trying to say at the beginning, where it, it feels like it's weird having the change in distribution announced after this cycle, because in a way, right. it would have been the, the perfect way to have delivered this cycle of player cards as well. Yeah, that's... Uh, Just because they, they, they feel, it, it, as you say, it feels so self-contained. Yeah, it's they're more cohesive, I think, than in previous sets as a result of having this Blessed Curse thing, like, dominate the, the theme of the set. Yeah. Whereas in, like, early cycles especially, it was just, like, a smattering of cool and useful cards, you know? And once you have that cohesive identity, I'm imagining it gets easier to design around it because you're like right this is the thing we're doing what other cards do i fit into that right does that make sense or am i no no yeah that makes sense how many cards sprang fully formed once you had bless and curse down as a thing you were going to do um i would say we we don't create all the cards like simultaneously for sure um Mm -hmm. we will we'll play test them in like batches we'll send like one batch out one week and then like a few weeks later here's a batch two batch three batch four etc so i'd say that that first batch sprang up like pretty quick um lots of like obvious go-to like okay throw curse tokens in the bag for a benefit you know faustian bargain Mm -hmm. deep knowledge keep faith and like book of psalms and i think like the the word of what's it called word of radiance are probably like mm-hmm. some of the first cards that I designed. I think the and like the covenants were pretty quick as well. And then like it almost kind of designed them in level order, <laughs> I think. Mm. Um with this set, which is not something I normally do. You didn't go straight to the like mystic level five right. what's the weirdest effect I can put in this. Cycle? Yeah, it was kinda like <laughs> what are what are the big obvious ones? Like what are the like, you know, well, duh, of course this card's going to exist, you know? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. then later on it was, you know, okay, what's the big payoff? Or what's the, um, what's like a a really niche Bless Curse effect, right? Yeah. 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 No, it's, it's fascinating. Are there any particular cards you want to talk about, Frank? Or just, just quiz, 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 yeah. quiz, 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 on <laughs> yeah. while she's with us. Well, well, funnily enough, I asked that question about the balancing act of picking non-Bless and Curse cards versus Bless and Curse. And when I went back and looked, I'd forgotten about this card, but it provoked so much discussion between us people. <laughs> the Riot Whistle. Oh, oh yeah. yeah, the Riot Whistle. <laughs> I, you, you probably don't know this, Vaxine, but we, we did yeah. when we did the first look for the pack the Riot Whistle was in. It's in one of the first few packs, isn't it? The first yeah, one yeah. Two. I think I listened we, we, to that episode. We, we 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 pulled out the right whistle and we we spent about 15, 20 minutes talking about it. We, we pulled us oh well, it's free action to engage, and then we just went on and on and on about it. Kept on finding new stuff to say. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah. yeah, that was one of the cards. 
I wouldn't say a ton of cards are like this, but that was one of the cards that... So when we design a set, we over-design um, the, the set. Like, we, we put more cards in the set than can actually fit in the packs. And then mm-hmm. we'll cut at the end the cards that, like, like this card needs a little bit more time in playtesting, or this card doesn't really jive with the investigators in this set, or doesn't really fit into the themes of this set or whatever. Usually it's the former. Usually it's like, this card just needs a little bit more time in the oven. And... Mm-hmm. We, we form like a folder of just like ideas, just card ideas. And so a lot of times often when we're working on a new set is we'll just fold all of those cards back in and keep playtesting them. Right. So there's some, there's some cards that have been in playtesting for like three years because they just keep getting kicked down the line, you know? Mm. And. The Riot Whistle, I don't think it was quite that long, but the Riot Whistle was definitely one where we designed it apart from Innsmouth. I think we designed it um, in... I don't remember what cycle we designed it in. But it didn't receive a lot of playtesting. Because it is kind mm-hmm. of a card that you have to like build around a little bit. So we waited until now to release it. And I so I really like it, because it's... Um, it's it, yeah, it's one of those effects that like you don't expect it to be as impactful as it is. And then you yeah. play it, and you're like, oh, wow, I just, I've I'm saved, like, five actions over the course of the game, you know? Yeah. Um, and if you're, like, Zoe or or Mark or someone who likes to engage enemies a lot, and you can throw in other cards in there that, like, that benefit from it, mm-hmm. it becomes mm-hmm. really powerful. One of the first bits of Arkham content I, I ever created was uh, an article about why Taunt was good. Right, uh, because I, I I was like, oh, this seems okay. I was playing Zoe in Dunwich, and I threw that in, and like every time I I had Taunt, it, I found a great use for it within like one or two turns. And um, right, whistle kind of feels yeah, like Taunt is great. It's just it's really straight up and down. It's just boom, extra action to engage. Right. Do you know what I love about Riot Whistle? Oh, the Riot Whistle effect. Riot Whistle. The yeah, that, <laughs> that it engages your attention and then you can't stop talking about it. It's amazing. <laughs> but it also it also awesome. came out just before or after War of the Outer Gods as well. Oh, so sure. Because it's, it's fascinating yeah. to me because engage actions in Innsmouth are maybe not what right. you necessarily want to do. <laughs> yeah. Like, the, yeah, it's the kind of a troll card. is not lost on me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Pure troll card yeah. that you... Like I never want to spend one of them, my my free riot whistle actions. It's sometimes it's sometimes really fun to put cards like that in a set because you you take it and then you bring it back into a previous campaign, mm-hmm. and it, it forces you to reevaluate like older stuff in a new light. You know, yeah. Like it's not it's not all Carcosa. about like Innsmouth. Yeah, riot whistle Getting Carcosa. The, the the man in the pallid mask is is you know he's aloof. Yeah. Was it was playing, we were playing Dunwich the day, um, and Zoe engaged a whippoorwill, and then used Beat Cop to kill it. Nice. And I was, I yeah. Thought, well, why, why have you done that? And I get free money. Free, free money. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> why, why would I not do that? And you're like, oh yeah. And Peter, how about you? Before, before we move on, is there a card? I can briefly mention one. Yeah, I, I've really enjoyed using Unrelenting. So, so my first playthrough through Innsmouth has been with Silas, finally, and I absolutely <laughs> adore him. He's he's so much fun. And, I mean, I think Unrelenting is a pretty good card, uh, but also it's I think there's a lot of fun decisions you get to make with it because you can make a test 
harder to pass. <laughs> right. You can make it harder for value or you can yeah. make it easier. Easier. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I think there's, there's a lot of fun decisions to make with that card. Um, and especially inside this where you can, you can pull tricks where you can actually make a test easier to pass, but then bring it back to your hand anyway. It's just an extra little, a little cool thing you can do there. You can also do something where uh, something I like to do with it is pick like the worst token in the bag, seal it, and then also seal some good stuff too. So you still get some value out of it, but then yeah. like you've also sealed like the negative six, put a doom on the agenda or whatever. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah my my favorite cards in the set tend to come from moments in playtesting, typically from a playtester where they use a card and you know everyone at the table is laughing and smiling. Like, I'll never forget Sister Mary with enchanted hand grenades, like holy hand grenades, <laughs> um, just throwing them into cars in horror and high gear. Oh, brilliant. It's so, it was just like so funny and kind of goofy, but also really cool. Or like another one was um, the Flute of the Outer Gods. Mm. At one point, I'm trying to remember, I don't know if I might have changed it based on this but i think at one point the big shagath that that shows up in n2d wasn't elite and so i remember there was a time where um a playtester was just like like the the like the pied piper just using the flute of the outer gods to like push the shagath forward through (laughs) through the town of insmith and like it was really funny i i like that card a lot too yeah that that card we were scratching our heads about (laughs) because there's so much going on on it yeah it's expensive but it's very neat yeah yeah it's just fun to play now maxine you mentioned as well that some cards don't make the grade in one cycle and then again kind of get bumped on and we actually saw some player cards here as well that fitted in with the investigator starter decks which we haven't mentioned yet and haven't had you on the cast since they came out that's right i didn't even think about that so, so you know, we ended up with Hard Knocks level four and Blood Pack level zero in Innsmouth. Right, and right. then we saw some of the other kind of corresponding cards across the different factions in the starter. Yeah. my I assumed that you designed the starter decks at the same time as Innsmouth, but yes. maybe you didn't. Yeah. And yeah, maybe it's just a case that you had the freedom that you got those extra five packs to spread all the cards out into. No, you I, you hit the nail on the head. We basically designed them in tandem with one another. When we're working on a new cycle, the player cards is the first thing that we work on, and then we'll work mm-hmm. on the scenarios. So it just happened to be that they lined up pretty well. And and we also had two developers on the line, um, like full-time, which was new. So we had the opportunity to like really work on all of these cards as a big set, with the knowledge, of course, that Innsmouth has Bless and Curse, and the Starter decks has their own thing that like we're specifically trying to do for them. So yeah, it was... I, I don't remember who... Which one of us had the idea for the level four that like had a repeatable resource? Mm. I don't remember. I, I don't want to claim credit for it if it was Jeremy's idea. <laughs> <laughs> but it was kind of like, well, we can throw the other ones that, you know, we want to complete the whole cycle. We don't want to just release two of them. So we can throw the ones that aren't in there into the Innsmouth cycle. And then the same thing for, you know, vice versa. Yeah. yeah. Blood Pact in particular was like really great because it fits so well with Dexter, you know? He has a built-in way of getting rid of it that most other investigators can't do. Right, yeah. yeah. So it's cool that like they take on a new light depending on like the investigator that you're playing with them, you know? Absolutely. How do you feel the starter decks have been received? Oh, I think they're tremendous. Like, 
I think it feels like players really like them. Um, mm-hmm. I know a lot of people who picked up two and like they keep one shrink wrapped, uh, not shrink wrapped, but like together so that if they play with a new player, they can just hand it to them. Um, and then they integrate the rest into their collection. I know a lot of people who did in fact like get into the game from the starter decks, which is really cool. Um, and use them in like Night of the Zealot, you know, instead of the starters that are provided there. Mm. Yeah, they've just mm. been really, really well received. I think they accomplished exactly the goal that we set out for them. Um, and the new characters have been very well received, like very popular. Yeah. Stella, yeah. especially. I mean, Stella won that uh, basically yeah. popularity contest <laughs> that um, yeah. I think Mythos Busters was, was putting on. So that's really exciting yeah. for me. She, she's really good. She's so much fun she's to play so as fun. well. Um, mm-hmm. I, I've got a reputation in my friends for just playing total bullshit decks, <laughs> and as Stella absolutely fits into that role. When like seventeen cards later, you've played, you've redrawn your whole hand and found all the clues on a location, <laughs> despite failing the test. You right, all right. I failed this test, so I'm going to <laughs> discover two clues, draw two cards, and then like. <laughs> take the test again at a plus two and everyone's like yeah. oh my god <laughs> um and winnie also winnie's really fun um yeah so was nathaniel they're all great i mean they're all so much fun they all sit lovely in the kind of classic uh pie sections of their, their various factions as well which is, yeah. which is nice for a new player because you can be like ah you're playing seeker let's just draw loads of cards that's that's how yeah. you want to play you just have a hand of like half your deck yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. 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 I, I'm I'm particularly proud of Winnie because she, I think more than any other investigator in the game, really makes you feel like you are that character. Like you're throwing caution to the wind, you're if you're putting one card into a set, you might as well put two, you know? Mm. You're going overboard with everything that you do. And that's that's Winnie. Like that's you're playing Winnie. Your 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 mind is in tandem with the mind of the character. You know that's really cool. It's just glorious, isn't it? When yeah. there's that that I mean I know I've said that to you before. That's <laughs> some of my favorite Arkham moments when I feel like what I'm doing is what the investigator's doing. Whether that's yeah. working out where to go to get the clues, or whatever. Or like utterly terrified of something. <laughs> or yeah, exactly. I'm really terrified, and yeah, to have an investigator that's just like double down, do more push it often the right line for winnie seems to be to go big because she gets so much more value out of going big and gambling which i just think is great that then you adopt that as a player and everyone else is staring watching you going what are you doing yeah it's like well i'm one up on this test so i'm gonna commit four more icons and it was like what yeah (laughs) yeah yeah it's cool does the future design of the the cycles if, if we stick to a player cycle in the box kind of expansion, does it maybe encourage you to be more self-contained in your design in the future? Or do you think you still... I know what you said is you try and include some cards for past investigators in each cycle. Are we maybe going to be in more of a, a siloed kind of thinking with player expansions? Um, no, I think I think you should expect a pretty similar smattering of cards. Okay. Yeah, because really uh, again, like distribution we, we that's changing. Yeah, because like again, we we divide we design all of the cards together as a as a group anyway, and then split them up at the end. So it doesn't really change that. Um, obviously, there's more investigators in the game um, than there mm. were before. So, but I don't think that makes it harder. It just means that 
we're more mindful of like when we design a card, for example, there's a card we spoiled in the edge of the earth investigator box that I'm really proud of because it works for so many different characters and it's different for each of them, you know, Mm. I don't know if you want me to stay away from edge of the earth spoilers. Like, no, you can. Yeah. So like the, the sweeping kick that we revealed, right? That card's really cool because it's a fight event. So Nathaniel likes it. It's a trick, so Rita likes it. And it's particularly great for Rita because it evades. So it actually does, it triggers Rita's um, ability. It's great for Mark and Lily because they have decent agility. So like Mark is a 5-3, I think. And Lily can be a 4-4 if you build her that way. So for both of those characters, you're hitting with an 8, which is amazing. It's just good for so many different characters. And it feels a little different for each of them. And I, I think that's really great. So that's kind of like the direction that we want to go for when we're like making older investigators uh when we're adding new cards for them we want to kind of like blood pact is like that too right we're like Mm. it's great for dexter but it's also great for marie it's not about a card that's just perfect for one investigator and kind of mare everywhere oh and more like gone oh i I was gonna say and blood pack is great for lily because it adds to combat Mm -hmm. yeah 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 yeah, Yeah. that's nice that's really nice (laughs) (laughs) And I really like with the with the spinning kick, the I like the theme that jumps out there obviously is that Nathaniel can add damage to his events. So like his right. kick might not be as elegant, his agility is <laughs> yeah. good. It but like breaks your it leg. It's hard. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Whereas, you know, Rita's kick is maybe, yeah, she's already kind of sprinting away by the time it's landed because she's right. so agile. It's even good for like skids, who has like mm-hmm. slightly lower combat but really good agility. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's it's just cool. So that's kind of like what we want to do moving forward. That's really good to know. Yeah, I was wondering as well, like we're up to, I think, 48 announced investigators now. It's a lot to keep in mind if you're yeah. designing a, a set of cards. Yeah, for sure. Well, I think we move on to talk about the Innsmouth Conspiracy campaign now. Yes. And so this for listeners is your little warning again. If you haven't finished the campaign yet, we're going to dive in, no holds barred. So this is the point that you stop listening if you need to. Okay, we'll carry on. <laughs> so yeah, Maxine, what were your key aims with the Innsmouth Conspiracy? And we ask this normally about the next cycle, but what words <laughs> and themes were front and center on your mood board? Yeah, so I think more than any other campaign that we've done so far, we wanted to have this story feel like a mystery, you know? We wanted to focus on the supernatural mystery part, like the investigation. A lot of, you know, it kind of depends on the cycle. Like, Dream Eaters felt more like an adventure. TFA obviously felt very pulp adventure But, like, for this one, we wanted a more, I have no idea what's going on at first sort of uh, feel mm-hmm. to it. So mystery, obviously, like, the amnesia kind of fits into that. This idea of, like, piecing the puzzle together, you know? Like, the narrative mm-hmm. is a puzzle and you have to piece it together yourself. And we wanted to reward players who who dived into it in that way, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think even from our looking at just how the campaign opens, you don't have like a long prologue and right? story. Yeah. It's Very actually different. only when you you first advance the act that you get a flashback and you're like, oh, wow, okay, who's this right. guy who, oh, he hired us to go there? Okay, and it sort of start, you start to engage with the story in the way that you're then going to engage with the story later, yeah. And I love that you learn about that character and you already know that they're dead. Yeah. You know what I mean? Kind of brutal. And you're like, okay, what happened? 
Mm, mm, yeah, like we're already Super past ominous. some pivotal, some pivotal moment happened, some climactic moment. We're already past it. You know, mm. I love that aspect of it. Gives you a sense of dread when you get to the other side when you've pieced it together. Oh yeah, and you know that moment. You know something bad's gonna happen. (laughs) Yeah, I love. I especially love that art piece of uh, Dawson in uh, the Lair of Dagon, like with his gun drawn, and he's like kind of creeping forward, and you're like, oh, poor Dawson. Like I know (laughs) you're not gonna make it. Mm, mm, Yeah, yeah. Well, and we kind of know we're not gonna make it quite right. (laughs) Yeah, we'd like to. Exactly. Yeah, Yeah, it's kind of cool. The, the the flashbacks are certainly like in uh, a lot of popular media. They're like a common trope in conspiracy yeah. or mystery type. And um, I mean, I think it a Memento pops immediately to mind, right? Yeah, Memento is a huge one for me, for sure. Did you ever watch Memento in the chronological order? Did you I, do the DVD extras? Yeah, I think I did. I think it was almost like right after watching the the actual movie uh, was mm. rewatching it. And obviously, it's a very different experience, you know. Mm-hmm. But like that first, that first watch of Memento is like iconic. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure no, I, read, I remember vividly read someone was. Uh, read, read somewhere about someone who accidentally watched it in the chronological order accidentally oh, no. for the first time. Oh, oh well, no! That was, that was really straightforward. Well, that was what's, kind of yeah, the big fuss about? It's kind of boring. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. Right. No, oh poor person. And and what about Innsmouth? Because, of course, it's possible to put the whole campaign in order chronologically. Right. Was it designed that way, though? Did you did no. you lay out the story narratively and then start chopping? Oh, well, I mean, so, okay. The outline of the scenario was, was made... Because, I mean, that's always the first thing I do with every campaign. Is, like, mm-hmm. outline the chronological order of events um, and turn them into scenarios, right? Mm. Like, oh, this could be a scenario. This could be a scenario right here, you know? So it's like I create a narrative and then I turn eight chunks of that narrative into scenarios. So I did that for Innsmouth, but then I reordered them. But I didn't design them in that order. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like Pit of Despair was always scenario one. But like I always knew from the get go that it was going to be actually like the, you know, fifth event in the chain of events or whatever. Okay, so yeah, it wasn't that you sat down and wrote the story and said, you know what would work better if we (laughs) jumbled the order here? Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, it wasn't like designed originally with, you know, vanishing first and then into deep and then, or whatever. Wow, I'm way, I don't even remember the right order of my own campaign. Uh, Vanishing and then Devil Reef. Yeah. Right. No, it was was always meant to have the flashbacks. Like that was like Mm -hmm. a core part of the design yeah and i noticed that looking back that for instance at the end of in too deep to know where we want to drive to the lighthouse we need to flash back to devil reef and remember those things being taken to the light lighthouse right because that fills in the gap in our memories to kind of give us the forward momentum yeah well and that and there's also this there's kind of this idea that like that like harper is the one pushing us forward, and she remembers everything. Mm, yeah. Which yeah. plays into the twists later on and stuff. Yeah, let's just go there right now. <laughs> let's, we, in our Halfway Through the Cycle episode, we talked about what might happen next, and I mm. am on record saying that you wouldn't do this to us again. <laughs> I felt like you've done it enough times. It's and true, there have been a lot of And we went back and looked, and like, yeah. Harper was bruised, we went and read like how she meets us after Pit of Despair. 
her response seemed genuine that she was pleased that we were okay which right. i guess is true it is genuine. yeah yeah you know? no it yeah. it's it's actually cool because like it, it's all pretty internally consistent if you read mm-hmm. it through and like even her quote betrayal or whatever it's not so much a betrayal so much as she has her own mission to accomplish and yeah. she's she's gonna do it you know whether you help or not and she only is even remotely antagonistic or hostile towards you when she realizes that you have suddenly remembered the la- what happened like the last time you were in that room uh, and that you had like resisted the idea at first but like the con- the confrontation never actually occurred so it's all, it's all very tenuous and it's like can i you know reveal myself to you no okay yeah does yeah. that make sense? I'm, yeah. I'm just thinking it's another conspiracy, right? It's like the conspiracy right. of silence around what she shares with us. Because yeah, it, yeah. it doesn't, it's not in her interest to, for her to say, right, well, if you've lost your memory, I'm going to tell you everything. Because right. <laughs> you exactly. Know, had, yeah. 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 I, I, I really like Harper because she, she feels pretty three dimensional, in my opinion, at least. I, I hope she mm-hmm. feels three dimensional to everyone else, too. <laughs> And, like, when the twist happens, it's not just, like, oh, she's just evil. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. oh, she's in league with the bad guys. It's like, no, actually, like, totally not the case, you know? Mm, mm. She just has her own motive. Yeah, and she's got that slight, she gives me the vibe of being a rogue, I guess, because she boosts stats like Lola Santiago. Oh, yeah. So there's that, like, slightly, yeah, her she, own I mean, motive, she's her also, own interests. She's kind also of kind of roguish, I think, yeah. in personality. Yeah, yeah, I, she's I gone, her to gone and got bit... herself into scrapes and, yeah. Yeah, she's a bit sarcastic, she's a bit witty, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. when she's, mm-hmm. when you free her at the end of Vanishing, and there's like six different pieces of dialogue depending on who the culprit was, <laughs> and a lot of those, she's she's pretty funny. Um, yeah. yeah, she's like, I could have got out of this myself. Right, yeah, and you're like, I know. <laughs> you're tied up and they were about to hit Although you she does get out of it by herself if you... If you fail to rescue her, she's just really beat up. So she's actually not wrong. Peter, how did you feel about the quote unquote betrayal? Uh, didn't I? You said that I, I called this. I can't yeah. remember it. <laughs> but we had, when we did the lore episode, can you remember what I said, Frank? I think you said, what if she, what if she betrays us? And I was like, no way, not her. <laughs> Was exactly the ones you don't expect, Frank, or was it right. feel like a proper betrayal? <laughs> yeah, exactly. She wasn't even behaving fishy, no pun intended. <laughs> it's always interesting, I, th- I think, going... I think the... So I, I'm still on just a single playthrough of this cycle. I know Frank's done, done a lot more than I have, but I think more than other campaigns, I'm really looking forward to another playthrough of this, just to piece together everything knowing what the final story is, you know? Mm. Yeah, it's especially cool re re listening to the interlude right after you make it out of the pit of despair, knowing that you had just come from the moment at the end of Lair of Dagon, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And so she's like she's like, Okay, they went through the other exit, I'm gonna go over to where they exited and it's like, No, they're not there. What happened? Oh shit. So she's like scouring the beach looking for you. Um, this isn't mm-hmm. written anywhere, obviously, it's just like inferred. And she sees you leaving that pit and is like what the hell happened to you yeah because she just went through the front entrance basically yeah you know yeah. of the of the the layer of dagon of the esoteric order of dagon building 
it's kind of wild. There's like a whole separate story of what Harper's been doing while yeah, we've been off. Yeah, you know what it feels like to me? I always relate everything back to video games because I play a lot of video games. It feels a little bit like the um, Resident Evil Resident Evil I 4. Knew you were going to say Resident yeah. Evil. Yeah, yeah cause, well, because Resident Evil 4, you play as Leon the whole time. And you see Ada, like, doing her own thing, like, the whole time. And you're like, what is Ada up to? Like, she keep, her paths keep crossing with you, but she's clearly got her own agenda. Mm-hmm. And then you beat the game, and then the DLC came out where you actually play as Ada doing those events. It would be really cool to be able to see everything that happened from Harper's perspective. I agree. I think yeah. that would actually be a really cool narrative. Sort of Someone needs to go on making, like, a, a side yeah. scenario with a custom investigator. <laughs> that would actually be really cool. Yeah, because in Devil Reef, she doesn't join us. Right. She's she's she has, she's off doing says She has something. her mission. She has yeah. her mission. And you don't know what she's doing. Uh, in mm. my mind, she, that's her investigating the, the Order of Dagon, looking for the lair. Because mm. um, mm-hmm. then, you know, the event after that is the lair. And when you get to that part with Dawson, he's like, okay, we're going through the front. And what he doesn't say is that Harper's going through the back. At that yeah. moment, yeah, <laughs> you know the tunnels, the 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 tidal tunnels, um, yeah, and you meet course, up yeah. in you know the lair. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. gosh, my voice is like totally shot. <laughs> it's do you fine. Want to, going. Do you want no, to get no, no, water? No. You you're all right. Yeah. No, we're good. Just you, say. Can, you can even keep that in. <laughs> I was just like, oh. <laughs> well, you mentioned tidal tunnels there, and it's something I wanted to bring up at some point because tidal tunnels feature. Mm a lot in this campaign i suppose well i suppose the other thought i had was we talked about this just before we recorded before we were on the line with you the scenarios feel really consistent in tone which is great because we're in one place innsmouth and they kind of they land that way and it was quite challenging to think of different questions about the scenarios because they feel quite similar and i wondered if part of that is the tidal tunnels effect that by the time you get to Lair of Dagon and into the Maelstrom, it's like, oh man, I'm going back into those tunnels. <laughs> and yeah, I, I really like that, that the you start to become quite familiar with the tunnels underneath Innsmouth in a yeah, in yeah. a way that's similar to what your investigators like, that you're sploshing through the same underwater caves and things like that. Yeah, I mean, one of the benefits of encounter sets in general, not just locations, but encounter sets, is mm. you become familiar with them. You become acquainted with them. And sometimes they're used differently in different scenarios and you're reevaluating them as they show up again and again. Um, like a perfect example is the, the witchcraft, um, treacheries in, mm. in TCU, mm. where the first time you see them, you're like, okay, these are just nasty effects that I can evade a witch to get rid of. And then you get into the secret name and you're like, there's no witches. The only witch is the boss, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. And it really changes the tone of them. Um, so it's kind of the same here where like the tidal tunnels are used many times, but the way that they're used is sometimes different. Like in Devil Reef, there are different islands. And so suddenly the, the tunnel that lets you like the underwater cave that lets you teleport, right? Like from one yeah. flooded location to another is like totally different in that scenario. And mm-hmm. in the lighthouse, they're kind of interconnected in this weird like 3D map almost. Yeah. It, it's just, um, it's cool. I, I really like yeah. the yeah, and all, I think all of the encounter sets are a little bit like that, but the tunnels especially because they're locations. And the underwater river, which can never be fully flooded, 
at first is like, oh, it's high shroud. It does have, does have, it has two clues. So you're like, oh, that's a bit of an effort, but it's a VP. Right. But as the water level goes up, suddenly it becomes the only safe place to wait. <laughs> yeah, it's like a bastion so, of safety. Yeah, exactly. So that shifts as well, where sometimes you see it like, oh, I can't get these clues easily. This is a nuisance. And then other times you're like, need to find the underwater river quickly. <laughs> Under- underground river, sorry. Yeah. But but that that's the other thing I think that adds. I mean, Frank's mentioned the, the tidal tunnels, but I think the use of the flood tokens and that mechanic where you've got to pass through um, a un- unfully flooded location in your turn, that appears on a, a good chunk more I than half. Three. Yeah. Yeah. Three or four. So it, it's it's almost like you become more familiar with how the drowning works as you right. go through. Yeah. And I, I like that. The, the, as as uh, everyone knows, one of those stressful sounds you can hear is that noise when Sonic starts to drown. <laughs> <laughs> and it's always got that feeling as the water's rising around you. You just need to find something for a gulp of air. Maxine, in in this we see the first deep ones in Pit of Despair. We get introduced to a lot of the the kind of core mechanics of the cycle going forward. So we get the flood tokens, we get the the tidal tunnels, and we get deep ones who pretty much all have an, an on engage effect. We did so. Obviously, this is something that's kind of been a mechanic since the core set because the agents of Cthulhu uh, in the core set have is it do you take a horror when they engage you yeah uh, yeah yeah horror so where did that come from and, and why do you hate this so much <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean it, it mostly came from that young deep one in the corset i i like to make sure that different enemies feel like a like a faction right like like they do their own thing you know like cultists mm-hmm. do this and silver twilight cultists are a little different from normal cultists and ghosts do this and witches are all about the discard pile you know like they all feel a little different um so when it came time to do the deep ones it was like well what have we already done with deep ones we did the engage effect what if they all had engage effects and then what if they there was a treachery that made them like engage you it was just like a pretty natural jumping off point you know yeah it's fascinating and it it really it does give them a really unique feel yeah you start to think about how you can tackle them without needing to do multiple engages as well yeah, and I like that they, because they do like automatic damage and horror, it makes you reevaluate healing. I think, mm-hmm. um, like you're more likely to take healing in Insmith because you're you know like you're gonna take some damage and horror. It's unavoidable, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It really brings to mind for me Forgotten Age, and it's really great that it's not the same rules that are reminding me of that campaign like in forgotten age it was alert saying right don't evade whereas the deep ones here they don't care if you evade them but they are going to do their thing to you again if you don't leave right so although like a lot a of them don't have effect. hunter so it's like yeah yeah it depends so on yeah it depends on the scenario too yeah like the the most efficient way of dealing with the deep one bull is it's only got two evade so just evade it and yeah, leave. Just evade it and leave. But oh, then if, the but then you know, if you kill a deep one, it's going to chase you. Yeah, I loved the yeah. deep one bull so much. I remember we we spent so many turns sitting there thinking about <laughs> what order to kill deep ones in to pull yeah. him around the map. Uh, the deep was, one linebacker. Yeah, <laughs> Chad. Yeah, we call him deep one Chad. Is what we call him. <laughs> I especially love running away from deep ones in into deep. 
and then like they like accrue behind you and oh, so you're getting chased line. by like yeah. yeah by like eight deep ones as like wendy or something <laughs> it's really funny isn't, isn't there the one in into deep like the 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 townsfolk guy. What's he got? He's got the, the hat on. The mob. Does no? It's not the mob. It's it's one the of the with trouble. Oh, the um, yeah, the the, the yeah. Joe Joe Sergeant. No, you're no, you're talking about an enemy. Yeah, the, the troublemaker. I'm sure. Is it is he called the troublemaker in Smith Troublemaker? I think, I think you're. Oh yeah 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 yeah. I know who you're talking about. Doesn't he do something? I, I don't remember the name, a but connecting location or something like that. You can evade him from a connecting location. That's right. By yes. Yeah. 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 Yeah, it's exactly like you, you say, Maxine. I remember when we played it, we just had, we realized exactly what you said because you're <laughs> trying to get out of there. <laughs> um, and you just run away and leave this, this queue of deep, deep ones behind you <laughs> to try and make sure the barriers are blocking their path. Right. Yeah. In Pit of Despair as well, you've said before that you quite like to have a mini boss at the end of the deluxe, but the amalgam felt like almost like a boss. Yeah, yeah. No, the amalgam was. Um, I just had this really cool vision in my head of this creature, so it didn't really stem from any design goal per mm. se. It was just like, I love this idea of going through these tunnels. You have no memory of anything. The only thing you remember is this encounter with this man, and all of a sudden you see this creature, and like he's very clearly, you know, dead and part of it. And you're just like, your mind is swimming with questions about like, what is this creature? And like, how did this happen? What am I doing here? How do I get out? And it's just chasing you through. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's a good portion of it. There's like five cards devoted to the amalgam. Um, yeah. So it really feels like yeah. a centerpiece to that scenario. I like yeah, it Yeah, it really does. And just when you think that you've handled it, it disappears into the deep. Right. The depths, rather. The depths, or if it's yeah. in the depths, you're like, yeah, we've got it in the depths. It then comes out again and you're... Like, that whole idea of it appearing out of the water at your feet, basically, it's... Yeah. Oh, yeah, it is. It feels like it's quite a tough campaign opener. I guess that's a... It's going to be tough if you've yeah. got no memory and you're... It's pretty tough, yeah. I, I definitely wanted it to narratively feel like... Like, there's the... there's It's kind of a meme of, like, the Bond villain throws you into a thing and then, <laughs> like, doesn't check to make sure you're dead. Yeah. Um, so I kind of wanted to make sure that it felt like something that you shouldn't be able to escape from. And mm. when you do, you're like, oh, thank goodness, you know. So, yeah, it's pretty tough. I, I wanted it to feel like a memorable opening. Yeah. yeah, yeah, for sure. No, I think it feels that way. And I've seen quite a lot of people online be like, OK, they're not pulling their punches with this, <laughs> <laughs> this new campaign. It's yeah. maybe a little tougher than I think I anticipated, probably mm. because of all the engage effects. <laughs> Yeah, the sort of the chip damage, yeah. Yeah, but I like it. I think one of the key things is it's not that hard if you just go for the exit. It gets hard if you stick around and try to get, like, all the flashbacks. Then it starts to get really hard. And it rewards replaying and knowing the tidal tunnels as well and knowing what you're looking for and, and how to do that as well. Because I've seen, I've played before where people have wasted time being like, let's get the clues here. And it's like, no, 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 we're going to the following locations and no other one. You know, you sort of, that. I suppose that runs counter to what you're meant to be experiencing. Um, yeah. But, so we move on then to our first flashback, which is the vanishing of Alina Harper. How hard is it to test a scenario <laughs> like this where I think I worked out that there are 36 possible permutations for 
<laughs> what outcome there will be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's definitely tough. Requires a decent amount of playtesting and a lot of trust in mm. my playtesters. But also, like, we try to ensure that no matter what that permutation is, things will work, you know? So a lot of the effects are designed in such a way that, like, no matter what combination of hideout and suspect you have, it's, um, you know, nothing is going to break. Mm. Right? Yeah. But I'm okay with the difficulty fluctuating. I think that's fine. As long as it's not, like, so wildly. You know? Because mm. it, it adds to replayability. And it adds to, I think, like, people talk about, like, swinginess. Like, oh, this is swingy. I don't necessarily think that that's, like, a bad thing. Like, de facto bad. Because um, mm. highs and lows, emotional highs and lows, and also highs and lows in difficulty are good for a game. As long as they're mm. not too in extreme. You know? Yeah, yeah. And in this scenario, I often feel like there's normally a point where I'm like, yeah, I'm doing so well at looking at the suspects and working out, looking at the lead deck rather. And then there's probably also another point where maybe I've just done another search and seen all things that I already knew, where I'm like, I'm never going to find this out. And I think that's quite <laughs> good. That is close to what it is like going around searching for a missing person. There are highs and lows in in a search. So Yeah, sometimes yeah. you get like a, a breakthrough, you know, yeah, that changes yeah. everything. Um, I like that um, each of the suspects feels like different strategies can help with tackling them. Mm. What might be a difficult suspect for you to tackle might have actually been a really easy one for me to tackle, you know? Mm-hmm. So Yeah, yeah, yeah. So to, to a certain extent, there's a, a, a level at which playtesting brings like diminishing returns with this kind of scenario. Yeah, yeah. Because you have to factor in so many things. You have to factor in like... What investigators are you playing? And what's your style of game? And like, how experienced are you? And all of this other stuff, in addition to which permutation you got. And did you find out which permutation you had when you were at the other side of the map? Right. Where it, yeah. You know, all of that kind of thing. <laughs> and how much doom did it take you? Yeah. Uh, I remember my first time playing this, uh, my, uh, one of my other um, fellow players uh, instantly took a dislike to Joyce. And everyone <laughs> was saying, it's definitely Joyce. And we got to the end, and I think we had actually narrowed it down, and it was Joyce. <laughs> nice. <laughs> <It's> just distrustful. <laughs> and th- this is quite a... Actually, and the Pit of Despair, they're quite big, uh, expansive in terms of locations. Mm. And I think this is, with one notable exception, this kind of applies to all of the, the scenarios in this campaign. Was it any kind of conscious choice to, to have bigger layouts or, or put more emphasis on movement abilities on in the players yeah yeah it was i think uh, it helps to sell the mystery flavor when there's a lot of locations like the bigger the sprawling map the the more of a sense of um uh of like like this is an investigation you know um mm-hmm. i think that the smaller maps are better for like we're trapped in a place and we have to get out or we're racing or we're you know surrounded by enemies or something like that i think for these kind of slower plotting investigations like vanishing especially big maps are really useful and then of course like in too deep it needs to be a big map because otherwise the get from point a to point b kind of objective (laughs) doesn't work for a whole scenario you know Yeah. yeah and for like devil reef like if we're on a boat going from island to island to island the bigger the map the more it feels like that boat is really helping 
Yeah, mm. absolutely. Yeah, or like necessary. Even the scenario where you don't move much, sort of, there's still a lot of locations there. Yeah, yeah so it, it was kind of an idea that we hadn't really fully explored, I think. And I think, um, I would say Edge of the Earth also has some pretty big maps, so. Oh, that's mm. exciting. Um, but it's not that, that I, I hope players don't take that as a direction that like the game is moving to big maps. It's like not necessarily the case, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's nice to think about. Uh, we, we actually did an episode purely on movement this cycle. And yeah, I think prompted probably by this feeling but when we've seen mm. our teams performing well it's when they've got a lot of movement and they're able to to get to all those locations quite quickly um, and it makes sense if you're looking for a, for a key or a clue being able to move a lot and find them quickly i think makes makes intuitive and flavorful sense yeah and it's one thing that every investigator will have to do more or less at some point i say that give <laughs> the nathaniel safeguard player that i was playing with recently who refused <laughs> to take move actions um but yeah most most of it like particularly if you play solo you know unless you're like action one player pathfinder you're probably spending actions to move so you're gonna invest actions in exploring right. these big maps we also for the vanishing we get our first it, it is our first flashback but also we get that sort of introduction to Innsmouth, which could have been the prologue. And I, I kind of really like that this comes a bit later where we're obviously remembering arriving in Innsmouth. But we then get to spend XP right at the start of the scenario rather than at the end of the previous scenario. Right. What's your thought process behind how spending XP should work in terms <laughs> of flashbacks? So that was probably one of the toughest things for this cycle. Mm-hmm. Um Originally, we had a much more complicated, I had planned on there being a much more complicated system for keeping track of stuff. You, you would actually have like a different set of information for pre-flashback, or pre-pit of despair and post-pit of despair, basically. Right. And that ended up being super unwieldy. Like, it was terrible. Trust me. It sounds cool. <laughs> it was really bad. No, yeah. So you would, you would, you would have like a different deck, you know? Yeah. And um, it was just really unwieldy. And I just decided, okay, I still want to get that sense across of, like, we're getting this experience because we're remembering. Mm-hmm. And also, like, heading into Vanishing, maybe it makes sense for us to have some experience because we're prepared, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, we, we didn't just, like, show up in Innsmouth. We, like, got hired to do it and, you know, drove there ourselves and, and stuff. I think originally you didn't spend experience going into Vanishing, and that's why there was that at the end of the interlude, like, don't spend experience yet. Yeah. But in playtesting, it was, like, kind of a nuisance to go through two scenarios in a row without spending any. Um, Players wanted to spend at least a little bit of experience. So I decided pretty, I would say pretty late in the process, like, maybe a few weeks before the deadline. You know what, let's let's move this to Vanishing. Let's let them spend experience um, heading into Vanishing. Hmm. Which unfortunately led to the awkwardness of like the campaign guide saying, don't spend experience yet. Okay, spend it. Yeah. Like back to back, which I don't terribly like. But it does sort of teach you that there are going to be moments in the campaign where you can't spend experience. So in a way, it's in a way it makes sense. Um, mm, but then yeah. I don't I don't think it really panned out quite the way I wanted. But it was meant to sort of evoke this sense that like this version of you pre-flashback is not the same as the post-flashback version, you know? Like, there's a separation in the timeline. 
but obviously like trauma still works the same way so <laughs> yeah the certain yeah. things that it just would have been really complicated that, to do it fully like the way i wanted to and I think actually it's the like the Dream Eaters thing of just having two separate characters that are on two completely separate paths that that brings with it its own hurdles where people will say, oh, right. if I'm going to go and play two scenarios, I need two different decks made or whatever it is. Like it works because you say they're separate. Yeah. Like with Dream Eaters, it was fine because you could actually build both decks. Yeah. You yeah. know, and keep them separated. Um, but with this, if it was like, oh, no, it's like I'm still Dexter. You know, I'm just, yeah. this is pre, uh, this is flashback Dexter. So let me take these cards out and put these cards in. Like, it was too much of a hassle. Yeah. 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 I think, I think the point you make as well about straight after the first scenario, we get a warning, don't spend experience. That's like, I think useful for all players that, you know, I've often played in groups where as soon as you finish a scenario, it's like, how much XP did we get? What are we buying? We don't look at the rules reference and follow the steps for post scenario right <laughs> clean up we're just like yeah what what are you getting next oh what's the next scenario so just having that to, it's just kind of like a hint that good. like yeah. um that experience might not work the same way in this cycle as it used to yeah it's just kind of like an unfortunate side effect i would say that like anytime anytime in arkham there's something that's like well that's a little weird i wonder why it ended up that way it's probably because it changed really late in the process <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, these things happen, don't they? Yeah. Absolutely. I think there's also something, there's something for me, I think it's interesting about the, because we get two flashbacks in the first four scenarios, it means potentially we could have just, going into Devil Reef, you could have only spent XP once. Right. Because you would have spent it after Vanishing and then not after Pit of Despair or In Too Deep. And that would feel like to have played half the campaign and only be able to spend one chunk of XP might have felt a bit bit harsh as well. Yeah, I think the cadence of how XP is spent in this campaign ended up good. Ended up like mm-hmm. where I wanted. It's just like the messaging, you know? Yeah. 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 What a return to use for, you know? <laughs> so, yeah, we move on. We come out of our flashback. We're with Alina walking along the beach. And we see that Innsmouth is fully invaded and going to In Too Deep. So it's our second taste of Innsmouth as a place, sort of straight after <laughs> vanishing. But the map changes. Was this prompted by the mechanics of barriers, or was it based on our memories being foggy and how we thought Innsmouth was laid out wasn't quite the same? No, it's definitely the former. <laughs> like, Innsmouth is, in in vanishing, Innsmouth is like pre- like hectic chaos right yeah so routes are more open you're able to traverse the streets a lot more easy easily and in too deep it's like the the town is flooding everyone's running around crazy there's deep ones in the streets uh there's barriers it's 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 full of chaos and so the the map reflects that with like Mm -hmm. a much more rigid way of getting through the city but like with shortcuts that you can free up if you if you take the time to do that. Yeah, there's that fun. It's almost like, um, it's almost like you know, the start of um, some computer game levels where you get like an aerial shot of the entire map before it <laughs> then zooms in on where your player is. It feels a little bit like that when you start in too deep where you're like, it's right, we can go this way, this way, this way, and we can break <laughs> these barriers. Yeah. Also, um, 
Vanishing, this didn't really play a factor into it, but Vanishing was developed by me and Into Deep was developed by Jeremy. So there was a certain (laughs) element of like two different developers working on it as well. But when when we both played each other's scenarios, it was like, does this still work? Yeah, absolutely. We don't have to keep them the same. That's fine. Yeah, no, I didn't think I didn't think there was anything out of place with it being different. It was right. just um, I wondered if it was like, oh, we thought it was like this in Vanishing, <laughs> but I got it wrong. Yeah. yeah. No, not really. And anytime we're doing like the layout of a city as a map um, in cards, mm-hmm. it's always a little abstract because obviously. If it was an actual layout of a city, it would feel pretty mm. different, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I really like this This pair. was maybe one of my highlights of the cycle. I really liked coming from the more, I want to say, like more considered feel of, uh, of Vanishing and then the much more frantic feel of In Too Deep, yeah. where yeah. you're desperately trying to get out. I mean, um, Vanishing, you're revisiting locations and you're, you're going around the loop of the map uh, over and over trying to find find the stuff you're looking for but into yeah, deep is exactly the opposite you know where you got to get to <laughs> i would say that kick- these two scenarios like really highlight the feel of insmith like the the, the dichotomy because mm-hmm. you have like the slow plotting investigation and the mystery and then you have the full-on chaos frantic hectic <laughs> running you know which you can see again in like horror and high gear and to a lesser extent in like some of the scenes in some of the other later scenarios, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. In Into Deep, there's also that like, oh, and they have a Shoggoth. Just, right. just when you <laughs> thought a, that it was only Deep Ones. Yeah. Love that guy. <laughs> so the flooding as well is fascinating in Into Deep. It's one of the few scenarios, I think there's only one other, where it's not just the take five direct damage. It The flooding right. gets worse as the flooding of Innsmouth gets worse. And it's almost like a secondary timer that, you know, you might not be about to doom out, but there's just certain places on the map that you can't go anymore because of the flooding. Yeah, it's almost like a sort of evolution, I suppose, on the idea of just putting doom on locations. Yeah, a little bit. I I really wanted, I mean, Jeremy uh, had this idea of like, the town is like slowly sinking behind you, right? Like from right to left almost. Hmm. As enemies are chasing you as well. So it's like this double threat. And it made sense because it was it was like one of the only scenarios where when the water is rising, um, you're not like trapped underground. Yeah. 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 (laughs) So like the drowning didn't so much make sense. It was more of a threat of like waves uh, crashing into you and like cars and stuff being moved around. And like it's just like like a hurricane almost. Right. Yeah. 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 And even just things, you know, losing something out of your grip and whatever it is. Right, yeah. yeah, Stuff getting in the way and just, like, it becoming a trudge to move forward. And this is also another one where, a little bit like Pit of Despair, if you just want to get out, you can do that fairly quickly and efficiently. And again, we have this, the flashbacks, like, there's one particularly challenging flashback to get in In Too Deep. Oh, yeah. How did you make flashbacks feel like something players were actually re-remembering like you know how hard was it to make sure that players got a complete picture um of of what they were receiving yeah yeah. so like pretty early on as we were working on the scenarios i started putting a list of possible flashbacks together and i actually Mm. took like a whiteboard moved it into my room set it up next to my desk i actually took a picture of this and like did a sort of 
diagram of like all the different flashbacks and how they tie into the narrative and like where they fit in this Mm -hmm. linear narrative. So like we, I wanted to make sure that they felt right for the location that they're in and that Mm -hmm. they provided a reward that made sense for this scenario. Jeremy uh, invented like the various rewards that you would get and made sure that they were all really cool and that you'd, you'd really want to find them all. Mm, Um, But I wrote all of the actual like narrative sequences and figured out how they would tie into the future scenarios. So like the idea that the suspect escapes the jail and you can remember that you've visited the jail and saw that, you know, they had escaped affects Lair of Dagon and so on and so forth. No, that like they feel very wedded to place. Yeah. And of course, you can get you can get the bus driver as your personal chauffeur as well. (laughs) Awesome. I, I love that so much. We had, uh, I think, Luke picked up Joe Sargent in our in our campaign, so that like, shouldn't he, be allowed. Yeah, he drove the bus into the gate box. I think, <laughs> <laughs> which felt felt pretty wild, and then back out of it into a different location. Don't know what Joe thought of that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, speaking of vehicles, we move on from into deep. We get into cars at the end of in too deep but that prompts a memory of being in a boat so we go into our two vehicular scenarios devil reef and horror in high gear and we've put in our notes it's probably worth looking at vehicles like those scenarios side by side as as um there are two encounters with vehicles in the campaign what jumped out to me was that driving a boat is very action intensive and driving a car (laughs) is not (laughs) <laughs> and I've just put, is this true to life? And what did boats do to wrong you? <laughs> <laughs> no, it didn't really stem from any sense of like realism with cars and boats or anything like that. I mean, the the way that the cars work is more specific to how horror and high gear is designed. For Devil Reef, we, again, wanted it to feel like a more slower paced investigation where you can... Mm-hmm travel at your own pace and split up however you like or go all together. And I loved this idea that the boat was like just one, you have one boat, but if you're, if there's three or four of you, um, you can like drop people off, you know, or like, mm-hmm. all right, I'm going to pilot the boat and I'll, I'll, I'll wait here for you. You go in and, and investigate this cave and then I'll drive over here and I'll come back for you. You know, like that kind of thing. Yeah. Felt yeah. kind of cool in that sense. It is very action intensive. But I think that that uh, adds to the like the idea that like I'm piloting the boat, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I this certainly not true to life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and boats are slower than cars, right? Yeah, I, I guess so. <laughs> he I says think, I, with yeah, no no yeah. basis. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah I've, I've seen a few people say you know it's I think quite a challenging scenario in solo because yeah, obviously. I could see that. The action intensive for the for driving the boat. I have noticed in multiplayer, getting everyone back in the boat at the right time yes. is its own challenge that you don't really run into in solo. <laughs> yeah, because you can only yeah. enter or leave the boat once per round. There's no threat in solo that someone's going to leave you stranded. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Always it's really true. fun. <laughs> and there is also, I think, the as you mentioned earlier, the underwater caves completely come into their own in this scenario where you might have someone on an island who doesn't come back to the boat and instead decides to swim in the cave 
and appear at another island, which I just think is it's kind of awesome. <laughs> it's pretty cool. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. Or depending on the investigator that you have, you might have your own way of traveling. You know, maybe yeah. you're Luke and you can just teleport. Well, Peter can tell you all about that. <laughs> <laughs> I, it, quite often people were saying they were having trouble with particular scenarios and then we'd breeze through it. And the reason we'd breeze through it would be because the last few clues and keys on the various locations, Luke would just like, oh, I'll get on my gate box and go and get all those over the next three turns. <laughs> um, and then just shoot around the place. But I, I think nice. it, it really it really drove home to me. I mentioned this when we were just talking about the other two scenarios. I think movement is a much like something like Evade was in The Forgotten Age. I feel like you need to consider your movement in this campaign. Because the, yeah. the the scenarios are expansive, just be aware that they're not going to be much use in in horror and high gear. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's true. When will we have the engage cycle? When the engage action has its time in the in the <laughs> sun, and the riot whistle becomes everyone's favorite card. Yeah, it's already our favorite card. We talking yeah, about <laughs> exactly. Can you tell us a little bit about the three relics we run into in Devil Reef as well? Because they become I mean, they're significant story-wise, but they're also just pretty awesome for, like, encouraging investigators to splosh around in flooded locations. Right, yeah. So, yeah, they they actually stemmed from uh, sort of tying in, uh, not so much tying the story in, but tying the the setting of Innsmouth in with the board game. Because those same three relics appear in the Under Dark Waves expansion as well, which Ah. was being developed at the same time. So it was like... What cool things can we tie these two products together? And the story for those two, for, for Innsmouth Conspiracy and Under Dark Waves are very different. But those relics appear in both of them. So I thought that was a kind of a cool tie-in. So a way to like yeah. unite the two products. Yeah. That's really nice. Yeah. And it, it, it allowed Devil's Reef to have, I did want it to feel like there wasn't a specific end goal. There's just a, you know, you're trying to get as many of these as you can. Because mm. we want we want a few scenarios in every cycle to have that, that non-binary win condition, right? And so, obviously, they had to be good enough to warrant you wanting to get them as well. Mm-hmm. Especially yeah. since you're not going to immediately have them. Uh, yeah. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. if, yeah, it would just be, oh, they just magically appeared in my pocket. I remembered that I had that. It's like, no, um, they were taken away from you. Um, yeah. So they had to be really good. Yeah, you get a little taste of them here and it builds your anticipation for picking them up later on in the in the campaign as well. Right, yeah. And any time I've seen them hit the table, they've done work. Like they do feel oh, yeah. like They're very late strong. campaign strong cards that you want. They're not, you know, sometimes in the past we've had story assets where someone might be like, nah, it's all right, but I don't know if I need it. Whereas these, it's like, yes, I'm going to get value out of this every other turn or every turn. Like the Wave 1 Idol in particular, I remember Peter messaging me being just like, I just love it. Just kept killing deep ones because every time they spawn, I got an action to kill them with. You know, yeah, I like that they're particularly useful in Into the Maelstrom. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The Which one? The No, it's the cloak, mantle? isn't it, that allows yeah, you the, to move the, the wave mantle. mantle. Oh, oh, yeah. Goodness. Very good. Well, we had Luke had that in our, in our party. That it, just it as if it, as if he wasn't moving enough, he was just gliding around the map. <laughs> it was ridiculous. He was trying to find a way to flood his gate his um uh, his gate box location, <laughs> so he could move in and out. So he could move in and out of that as well. Did he rename it the wave worn dressing gown? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
I mean, well, speaking of vehicles, should we move on to horror in high gear? Yeah, my favorite. This is a wild scenario as well. (laughs) We we recorded our movement episode when Horror in High Gear had come out, which I was so glad about because if we had recorded that episode and we didn't know about it, all of our Innsmouth is all about movement takes (laughs) would have been slightly undercut by this. But yeah, Innsmouth maps are large. We've mentioned this already. It can be really action intensive to cover them. And, you know, did that feed into your your thinking where you're like, well, let's have one that's just a zero move scenario? No, not so much that. Um, it was mm-hmm. more like, so I've wanted to do a car chase scenario for a long time. Um, we have a lot of art pieces of things being chased and you're in a car. I mean, it's like the classic cover of every Arkham Horror board game. <laughs> it's sort of like this iconic thing. And it hasn't been in the card game. In fact, I have... Oh, up until now, pretty much refused to put vehicles in the card game <laughs> because I didn't. I, I thought it would be goofy if like Tommy had his motorcycle and was driving through the museum, you know? Yeah, yeah. So like, there's a certain level of disbelief I'm willing to suspend, and that was too far. Mm. But so for a long time, I wanted to do a car chase, and it was always a a, a big challenge because it's like, okay, you cover so much ground when you're in a car. Like, how do, how would that work? You know? Mm-hmm. And um, so I thought about like movies and the way that they like simulate the idea of a car going fast. And it's like the cameras on the inside of the car and they just have like a set moving around the car, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Especially like older movies. Right. Or like TV mm-hmm. shows with a low budget. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I could do it like that. Where like you're not moving tremendously fast, but like the locations are like moving under you like a treadmill. And that's what got my mind spinning. And so I thought of this idea of like a straight line, uh, almost like Spy Hunter, you know, where like you just have this like top down view of the road and you're trying to avoid things and you're trying to like find the right way and stuff like that. And originally there was just like the one car and everybody was in it. But then I was like, that doesn't really make any sense, right? That's kind of like a clown car. If you have like four investigators (laughs) and all their allies in one car. (laughs) And then I realized, like, well, that's wait. like the car that drives back to Mexico after, um, right? right. Of yes, yeah. yeah, with Alejandro so- Ichtaka, <laughs> like every other dog. person in it. Yeah. yeah. So then, and then I was like, oh well, well, Dawson and Harper would each have their own car. That makes sense. Yeah. That works yeah. Well. Yeah. It ended up working pretty well. I I think there's a lot of rules overhead at first, but it makes sense the way it works uh, mm-hmm. with the locations appearing in front of you, you moving forward automatically. And the challenge being trying to navigate that path Mm. in the form of getting clues while also being chased by, you know, Mm. other cars and other entities behind you. You've preempted a lot of my questions, Maxine. (laughs) I'd I'd literally written that every collection of Arkham Art has a car chase in it. There's there's one of the play maps. Has has the the sidecar, the two guys in the sidecar. Yeah, the two, two, they're employees, actually. Oh, really? I didn't know I'm that. pretty sure, if it's is the one I'm the, thinking of. Is it Daring Maneuver? Yeah, I think it's Daring Maneuver. Or no, not Daring Maneuver. Narrow um, Escape, is it? Narrow Escape, yes, that's the one. I, Although I Daring Maneuver is another. Yeah, those are those are employees. Where did all the car chase art come from in Arkham Files art? Well, I so in Arkham the original, Second? like, Arkham, yeah, Arkham Second Edition, there's sort of this uh, inference that when you're traveling around the city, you're probably driving. Mm, uh, it's yeah. never explicitly stated, but it's on the right on the cover of that game. 
is like the mm. the classic car getting attacked by a monster, which is used yes. in Devil's Reef in in uh, yeah. in in Horror and High Gear and Arkham Third Edition as well. And in Arkham Third Edition, you can spend money to move further. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it's like the idea of being that you're getting a taxi or something. Yeah, not that you're paying yourself to keep walking. Right. And um, <laughs> all of the vehicles in Arkham Third that you can get, like mm, yeah, Tommy's motorcycle or whatever, uh, or uh, McLenn's truck or whatever. Old boiler. Yeah, yeah, the old boiler. Yeah. They all help you move. Or, I'm sorry, Daniela's motorcycle. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, help you move around. I think Stella has like a delivery truck, right? <laughs> oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the other fascinating thing to me about Horror in High Gear is that there's a couple of corset cards that are particularly good here as well. Like, putting a barricade behind you if you're Luke is pretty Mm. good. (laughs) And also, dynamite blast over your shoulder. Dynamite, yeah. There's something about maybe the madcap race (laughs) element that feeds into it's like you said with the holy hand grenades over your shoulder. Yeah, I think this is probably the the pulpiest scenario we've ever done mm-hmm. you know like there's a there's a there's like a spectrum that we like to describe arkham uh where all the way on the left all the way on the warm end of the spectrum is a nun riding a motorcycle with a blessed shotgun shooting Cthulhu in the face <laughs> and yeah. all the way on the right end of the spectrum on the cold end is like pure lovecraftian terror right existential horror everyone is useless we don't matter at all Mm -hmm. and arkham files tends to be in the middle closer to the left of that spectrum closer on the warmer end Mm -hmm. um but we we do like kind of vary there are some scenarios that fall a lot closer to the right end of that spectrum um Mm -hmm. especially in like tcu and then this this one is like all the way on the left right like this one's like um you know amanda jumping onto uh, a another vehicle and like like taking the wheel and like driving off course and then jumping back into your vehicle is like really kind of goofy and fun mm. but it's cool and it's it's fun to think about yeah it really is yeah even the dynamic of like stop the car we need to work out which way to go and then right. you're desperately all like getting yeah. clues from from the undergrowth or or like slamming on the brakes because you just uh, drove onto the cliffside road and yeah. you don't want to <laughs> yeah. spiral you off wanna... into yeah. the yeah water. Absolutely. And I think even as well, because you can have the um, the horror of Devil Reef turn up in this scenario as well. Oh, yeah. And it's obviously like a water creature, but it's just <laughs> now on land coming for you or reaching up at you over the cliff kind of thing. Yeah, that's very Resident Evil nemesis like... How are you here? You're not supposed to yeah, be here. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And I think because it's a scenario that just throws some of that stuff out the window and says, let's go. I certainly I was just like, okay, the horror can get on land. Fine. I just didn't realize that. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. I'm going to move on unless you want to say anything else about driving, Peter. No, um, you, uh, Maxine, you managed to cover pretty much all my questions in your very first answer. So. Nice. <laughs> I, I, I really That's liked horror in High Gear. It reminded me a lot. The old games workshop game, Corker Walker, had a, a rolling road rule. That was like a, a Mad Max style um, skirmish game with orcs. Um, and it had a rolling road, rolling road rule. Uh, everything on the table would move back 
like towards one edge of the table every turn. Nice. So all of your terrain, all your vehicles and everything would move back. So you had to run to stay still. Um, and if you wanted to jump out of your car and pick up any loot on the table, you had to be really quick because <laughs> you would be moving back towards the edge of the table as you did so. And there's, I mean, there's, there's loads of games like that. What's the... There's a really old game. Is it called Apocalypse Road or something like that? Again, it's like a Mad Max type game where you're driving like a convoy vehicle along the road. So anything with that kind of rolling road feel to it, I absolutely love. And this scenario nailed it. I think my favorite moment in playtesting was uh, we were playing three players. So we had two people in one car and one person in another car. And the two people were ahead. And I don't remember why, but for some reason, someone got out. I, again, don't remember why. Yeah. And uh, the other person in the car, which was me, um, I was like, all right, I start the car. And they were like, what are you, what are you doing? What are you doing? And I just drove off without them. <laughs> and knowing that the other group would, would catch, the other car would catch up and pick them up. So they were just like stranded on the side of the road waiting for, uh, you know, Harper's car to catch up so that they could hop in. And that was really funny <laughs> to me. I love it. I love it. I don't, okay. I don't, I, God, I wish like, I remembered why. There was a, there's decisions about who goes in which car as well. I like that. And mm-hmm. who's driving. Exactly. Yeah. yeah who's driving. Yeah. It's very and, cool. Yeah, no, I think everything just kind of came together in the scenario. It's, it's a very different one. We've had scenarios where a lot of the cards in your deck work in a different way. So this is the one where, where Luke was like, well, this, all of my cards are put in my deck. I can't use this scenario. But that said, he did get to do a storm of spirits off the back of the car and like roasted nice. every single Sorry enemy that. that was, that was chasing us, which, which he yeah. enjoyed. So yeah, it's, it's a very different one, but I, I really like how it felt. I think that the mechanics nail that feel of racing away from something. Also, if you've never used a flute of the Outer Gods to lure an enemy vehicle into a dead end or something, or not a dead end, oh, but like a, a long way around or something, around. that's really funny. <laughs> Amazing. I love the sound of that. Proper Pied Piper stuff. Yeah. Well, well, well let's, uh, we, we jump straight from Horror and High Gear to A Light in the Fog, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, again, I really like, like, you know what? I've said this for most of them. This next one is my favorite <laughs> scenario, as I say before every single scenario. Nice. <laughs> That's what I do <laughs> all the time. Yeah, and, and then this this is a classic start off, gives you a little taste. Uh, you've got, you get a handful of locations, but then very rapidly expands. So you've got like a huge, a huge map underneath, and it very much feels underneath where you're standing, right? Because it right. physically, yeah. you've got the lighthouse like sticking out, which is really nice. So as you lay it out, it really looks like it, yeah, like, it really know, looks when, like a lighthouse with a layer underneath. Yeah, when you know when you play like XCOM or something, and you get the side on or uh, mm. like Fallout Shelter or something, and you've got like That's the side a really on good, view. Yeah, I didn't even think about XCOM. Absolutely. And the thing I really liked, and this is such a simple thing, but I liked the the fact that all the the locations on a row were connected. Yeah. And it feels, I don't know whether you want to talk about this at all, it, it, it feels like it's a simple change, but it really helped with uh, any groups or investigators that didn't have that movement, uh, that real movement um, enhancement in their decks. Yeah, it was important because I think this scenario, more than any other scenario, with the exception of maybe In Too Deep, has like a lot of ground to cover, right? Mm-hmm. Like this, mm-hmm. this, this map is enormous. So originally when we tried it without that, it was just like too much of an action burden to move constantly. 
between them, even with like the cave that lets you uh, go from a flooded location. And I don't remember who had the idea of the of the rose. I think it was me, but I don't want to claim credit if I'm wrong. But like that element, not only did it alleviate that a lot, but it also gave that sense of like a 3D map, which is really cool. Yeah, I liked that a lot. I do, I do have to shout out to our intern, Duke. Duke was an intern at the time that we were working on Innsmouth. And he actually developed a lot of the foundation for A Light in the Fog as his like intern final project. And so I actually gave him a design credit for it because he did so much work on it. He he basically wrote most of the art briefs. He designed Osiris and the the idea of this like deep one life cycle being such an integral part of the scenario with the nurse with the the um what are they called um the deep one um oh yeah um, nurse maid and hatchlings yes the the nurse maid yeah and the hatchlings yeah it was it was really interesting and we worked together on creating this sensation like I wanted to have this sense that like there's a threat from above and below and you're mm-hmm. trapped between them so the flood is rising and Osiris is coming down from the top that's like the core of the tension you know what i mean mm-hmm. yeah yeah and at any moment you might get thrown in jail as well yeah yeah that was another thing that like duke had this cool idea that like osiris could capture you and if he did he would throw you in a jail and um we played around with that a lot and i i, I came up with the idea of this story card that's set aside you don't even know what's on the other side until he throws you in jail the first time and you flip it over and it's the yeah. holding cell yeah i thought that was pretty cool I'm really glad you mentioned the 3D nature of it because yeah, it blew my mind when I was like <laughs> realizing like oh hang on they're a circle and lighthouse yeah. is a circle oh no way you know it's really <laughs> it works really well. I I also have to I also have to shout out that um, Duke is the one who came up with the title horror and high gear which I freaking love it's a great <laughs> such a good title like it, it was kind of like um it was one of those moments where he said it and it was just like it clicked and i was like horror in high gear are you kidding me that's perfect and just like immediately wrote it down and it never changed um that happens every now and then in yeah. development like something we'll think of something and it's like okay well that's done we never have to change that ever you know what i mean <laughs> It yeah. tells you exactly what to expect from that scenario, which is, yeah, which pretty is much. really <laughs> gratifying. It's, as soon as we knew there was vehicles in the cycle and we saw the name Horror in High Gear, we could put two and two together and, and you know, you're still surprised by the scenario and how the mechanics yeah. work. But, you had, you know, you've got the, the trope in your head um, of what it's going to be like, um, which helps you understand how it plays. I, yeah, it's a great name. Well done, to, uh, Duke, did you say? Yeah. So maybe... The intern is responsible then for maybe my favourite little flavour moment, which is that the original basement in Light of the Fog, before you revealed it, says something like, stares down to what must be a small basement beneath the lighthouse. Right, yeah, yeah. (laughs) It's only when you reveal it, it's like, another 12 locations. Okay, yeah. I just thought that was such a nice touch that... (laughs) You know, again, it mirrors what's going on for the investigator is what's going on for the player. I mean, you know that you've set aside a load of locations, but still just that like, oh, well, we'll just go down to this final location and then we'll be done. (laughs) Exactly how I thought in this scenario. And Mm. then, yes, we were wrong. (laughs) I I do wish I wish that like, you know, that's the kind of thing that 
like you didn't have to go through the motion of setting the cards aside because you 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 do kind of know what to expect. You do know this is going to be a much bigger scenario, but like if you if you had no idea, that would have been a much more impactful reveal, I think. Which is yeah. Cool. Yeah. So hopefully if you're if you're running this for someone else, think about that. Yeah. Just have it all off to one side hidden away. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing I noted when I was looking through this again, you you mentioned Aceros, who's a pretty beefy, is a boss-like enemy, and he comes back. Yeah, yeah. And I realized that there's there's the mob in scenarios two and three. Right. There's the Terror of Devil Reef. Devil's, yeah. <laughs> four and five. <laughs> there's Aceros. The, amalg- the Amalgam. There's the Amalgam, and then there's yeah. also Dagon, and then Di- Dagon and Hydra, in case you hadn't had enough of Dagon the first time. <laughs> Was that intentional, that this should be a campaign that felt like it had a boss character in pretty much every scenario? Um, It wasn't something that we, like, planned or wrote down early on, like, oh, how about in this campaign, like, every scenario has a boss? I think it stemmed partly because it's just a good Arkham design to have Mm -hmm. a character like that, especially one that's a recurring boss or a... Um, a boss that you can't immediately defeat and then just like they're not a threat for the rest of the scenario um like the amalgam mm-hmm. like the terror and devil's reef for uh most of the time it just like it adds a layer of tension that they're always present they're always a threat but i think it also stemmed from the fact that we had multiple hands working in this cycle you know this is one of the major dangers of having multiple people working, that they all want to hit the <laughs> players with a boss. and <laughs> The poor players. Yeah, it's almost like the encounter deck manifesting a, a personality or manifesting a large entity, isn't it? It's like the step up from just a big enemy. It's either one that stays, sticks around or that really causes the, the players a serious headache. So... The lighthouse leads us into our final flashback. And, I mean, there's something super ominous about the Lair of Dagon, because by this point we've worked out that something happens in the Lair of Dagon that means we're going to end up in the Pit of Despair. There's like exactly. that amazing yeah. narrative loop. But in many ways as well, this felt this scenario feels a bit like Innsmouth writ large. There's curse, right. there's keys, there's floods... There's tidal tunnels. Yeah, it's kind of piled in. Um, did you want an Innsmouth to the max scenario like this? Oh, and I suppose was it intentional to include all of the Innsmouthy elements in one scenario? Yeah, yeah, basically. I like to usually for the climax, but in this case for like the penultimate, right? I like to have a scenario that's like this is the final exam for everything that you've been learning. Up until now, right? Yeah, it's a lovely way of putting it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's how that's how I like it to work in video games too. When I play like uh, certain games that have like a raid or something big at the end, it'll be like, oh, it incorporates elements from everything you've learned, everything that you know up until now is gonna come to fruition here. And for this scenario, it made it actually made the most sense for it to be the layer of Dagon because Into the Maelstrom had its own thing going on and was very. Kind of a weird scenario in a lot of ways, uh, in like the way that it operates. So yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you're right. Like it, it's got everything that Innsmouth can offer. We were also sort of inspired by the Resident Evil games with the idea that like you go into this mansion and, uh, 
it's it's dark and foreboding and there's keys blocking your passageway to various places and as you get deeper and deeper you realize that there's more going on underneath the mansion than in the building itself that was also very resident evil-esque light in the fog is similar of course but layer of dagon is even more of a threat because you're you're above (laughs) the actual layer of dagon you know Mm -hmm. Um, i actually kind of like that the title the layer of dagon has like three meanings almost in that you're like oh the esoteric order of dagon building is the layer of dagon and then you go down into the tunnels and you're like oh no 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 no, wait this is the layer of dagon these tunnels Mm -hmm. and then you actually get to the location that is the layer of dagon and you're like oh yeah everything we've done so far (laughs) was not yeah right yeah like no dagon's literally right here oh oh (laughs) that's fun having him there but asleep uh, really builds a sense of dread about what he's going to do it's like when you like you set aside (laughs) set aside (laughs) Hasta you know what I mean or set aside Yogg-Sothoth right Um, and you you know this thing's going to come and mess up mess you up later Um, but actually here Dagon actually starts on the table but asleep and you've got this feeling of like trying to sneak around him as well yeah yeah and even before that you've got hearing his breath through the caves yeah flavor on one of the agendas or acts and it's like echoing through everywhere and maxine you said that when you finally get into the lair it's like oh but also there's that test on the lair when you enter and if you fail any tests while you're with dagon you start adding resources (laughs) so so there's that real like almost comedy moment of like investigators running into the back of each other trying to not go into that location <laughs> once the first one's gone in like oh no wait hang on yeah in my three-player group i was playing a stella and neither rain nor snow as a way of getting in to that nice. location That's and like protecting people <laughs> so that they weren't failing those tests and putting putting resources on dagon it's just um yeah I'm, I'm a very visual uh, person in terms of like, I, I like to close my eyes and really picture um, with, with, with all five senses, actually, like an environment. And for me, I'm, I'm highly philosophic, um, which is fear of, fear of deep sea, right? Mm. Mm-hmm. And the idea of going into this, this descending staircase that descends down into this, like, this pit of water and something mm. just enormous in the water breathing but like clearly asleep but like is it asleep you know yeah that is like very terrifying for me and, i'm like, feeling iconic. that in my stomach now as yeah Fra- frank, and I, <laughs> frank and i have both said you know we get that same feeling that the hatred of the uh, kind of an unknown unknowable depth beneath you Ugh. i i wish that um that's the kind of environment i wish could be 3d modeled you know, yeah, yeah. Like if this was a yeah. video game, like that would be oh, mm. so good. Is that why you put Dagon in? And this isn't this isn't the last scenario. You said almost right. you pictured Lair of Dagon as the the final scenario, but it, I mean, it's it, we've got one left where Dagon does appear as well, right? Why, why did you put Dagon in as a card? Um, we can see before then. So yeah, from the beginning we knew that both Hydra and Dagon were going to appear in this because they're they're a pair, right? They mm-hmm. always appear together. But uh, it was kind of tough because we we knew that we wanted both to appear, but we didn't want them to just feel like one entity. Like, oh, it's Dagon and Hydra, you know? So I kind of like the idea of, like, the esoteric order of Dagon is named after Dagon. 
um, but not Hydra. So maybe for the first few parts of the campaign, you're thinking it's just Dagon. Dagon's the threat. Mm-hmm. Really, Hydra is like the the more threatening one. Is like the more powerful one in the lore. So it's kind of interesting that you go through Dagon, and then when you get to Maelstrom, that's where Hydra is. Um, but Dagon is also there as well because we're not. I'm not going to pass up the opportunity to have two ancient ones in a single scenario. Yeah, and I really like this idea that, you know, you, you thought one was bad, and then you get into the Maelstrom, and right. you've got another yeah. one to Yeah, and then you've with. got both, yeah. And Dagon may or may not be awake by the time you get there, which is cool. Uh, absolutely, yeah. And, and and you kind of know what to expect. You know how, how nasty Hydra is going to be, because you've already seen how nasty Dagon's going to be. Right. Mm. And now there's two of them. Now there's two of them, exactly, yeah. <laughs> You mentioned earlier about the idea of always wanting to include some kind of non-binary win condition scenarios in a campaign. So, you know, not the straightforward win or loss. And what was it like designing Lair of Dagon where it's not mechanically non-binary? Like it it is, you either put the clues on the act or you don't, but it is in terms of narrative outcome. Yeah, well, I think this campaign, more than any other campaign, has a lot of little stretch goals and, like, little stretch mm. goals and also, like, like you, you win, but, you know? So, like, the Lair of Dagon, it like, it's a, it's a win or a loss no matter what, but there's lots of little things that could pop up that might help you or hurt you later on, and one of them is if, if Dagon wakes up, then obviously that's going to affect Into the Maelstrom a lot. Mm. But I think all of the scenarios have a lot of that element pit of despair even like you either get out or you don't but how many flashbacks did you unlock along the way in too deep Mm. is the same way i think really the only scenarios that don't have that are like horror and high gear and maybe vanishing of lena harper Mm. but even that one like you can you can mess up by just like going on a killing spree and hurting all the cultists (laughs) and making them mad at you yeah 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 Yeah. We've joked before about that, you know, Arkham speed run where you do your first action resign for as many scenarios as you can and race through. But you could probably do a, a similar Innsmouth speed run where you don't go for any flashbacks and you see a really pretty limited amount of the story. Like you'd still right. see the main story beats, but it, I suppose it's a good sign of your audience that people are willing to pursue them. Like I've not seen anyone complain, be like, oh, all of those scenarios were really easy. I, Why would I waste my time with flashbacks? People seem to have bought into the idea that they need <laughs> to find flashbacks and that that's yeah. part of what counts as a win. Yeah. yeah. I hope that, you know, players feel motivated to find as many of them as they can, even on their first playthrough. Even when we know you're going to betray us as well. <laughs> I'm not bitter. Yeah. <laughs> I just had a, a, we didn't write this as a quick question, but teachings of the order. Oh, which I was going to can... work this into my question. Ah, go go ahead then, Peter, yeah. <laughs> well, I, actually, I, all I was going to do was relate a, a quick anecdote, which is that, as is the case with every video game, we'd saved up everything on teachings for the end of the campaign, just like you do with all your health potions. Right. <laughs> and we used the curse, remove the curses at right at the beginning of Lair of Dagon. So we're like, oh, there's five curses in the bag. Well, I might as well get rid of those because then they won't appear. That's that We don't have to worry about curse for the rest of the, the, the scenario. Right. Um, and we were very wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Little did you know. We, got, yeah. we definitely got up to 10 curses at one point. 
So I, I was going to ask about curses in general. Did you agonise at all about... You've said when we talked about the player cards, you wanted to give people sort of the option to engage with a blessing curse. But we have the one scenario where we really have to use curse here. Did right. you agonise at all about putting it into the story when it was tied to those player cards that you could maybe ignore? Well, yeah. So I originally did not plan on there being any bless or curse in the campaign, right? It was just going to be a player card mechanic. Jeremy, who developed the Lair of Dagon, uh, thought it would be really cool to add the curse tokens in there specifically because it's like you're in like the cultist headquarters, right? Like if anywhere was going to make sense for it to be cursed, it would be here. And um, I thought that was a pretty cool gimmick for like a particular scenario to really focus on curses. So I was like, yeah, go for it. Like, that sounds awesome. So that scenario is like all it's very curse heavy, as you as you mentioned. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and I, th- I think Jeremy is also the one who made the teachings of the order. So it made sense to include that in there, knowing that um, Lair of Dagon was going to be very curse heavy. It fits together actually so nicely. Like you yeah. said that he made the rewards for In Too Deep. So Teaching of the Order is one of them for a flashback. And Lair of Dagon feels like almost the perfect scenario for all of the abilities on Teaching of the Order, which makes right. sense yeah. because it's Teaching of the Order and you know, the East yeah. Order of Dagon. So yeah, it yeah. fits together yeah. super nicely. For I sure. think Curse standing out for me as well of like we mentioned earlier, you can have cultists getting doom as sort of what they do. But if you can kill them, the doom disappears. But that idea of you actually being in a place that is cursed and it the effect on the chaos bag being like you're just less good at doing what you normally do as a result is really, yeah, cool it, and sort of yeah. atmospheric. It gives the whole building like a sense of foreboding, you know. And And all the tests you're trying to take, yeah. <laughs> and then finally... We kind of already previewed this when we mentioned Hydra, but we go into the Maelstrom for a really funky final scenario with two (laughs) bosses and that first moment of thinking, I have to unflood all of this is is a real kind of kicker of like, wow, this is a lot to do. I think it's, for me, one of the things I like is having it all laid out in front of me. It's Mm. like, wow, this is a big task as opposed to, say, cross this map, but you don't necessarily know what will happen at the end of that map. It's like, no, I can see Hydra's asleep there, Dagon is awake over there, and I need to somehow unflood Yehanthli. Yeah, it's one of those objectives that feels like unaccomplishable when you first read it, and then you do yeah. it, and you're like, oh, okay. Like, this isn't as bad as I thought. It's still, it's still like a monumental task, but it's not like... That's actually my favorite kind of Arkham objective, the ones that like feel really mm. imposing and like give you that emotion of feeling like oh gosh i'm really in for it yeah but you know when you play it you feel empowered at the same time yeah it's like the blob as well isn't it it's like we have to do how much damage yeah. and then yeah, yeah you start i was going to say the, the clues in um, war of the art gods as well <laughs> yeah. i remember we, yeah. we played with four player and it just seemed like an unbelievable amount but then you start to get the other teams helping you as well yeah 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 i, I remember every so often we check in how many clues we needed because stuff gets flooded as you go through this scenario which makes it a bit more difficult yeah and you you look at you draw an encounter card and it says increase the flood level and you think well that's another three clues i've got to get or uh, it's i it's one per investigator isn't it so it lets you judge those those uh encounter cards uh, on, on that basis and i'd like to hear that 
it felt like a really clear path for either a, like a fighting type investigator or a cluing type investigator because the right. damage translates directly to progress as well, right? Yeah. Is that yeah. something you've been conscious of in past the kind of finale scenarios you need to give? Yeah. We, we want to make sure that um, every investigator could have a path to victory, especially at the very end, you know? Punch out Cthulhu. Yeah. Like, it's okay if, like, there's one scenario early on where, like, if you're not a fighter or if you're not good at getting clues, you might have more trouble or you might have to take a different route. Mm. But, like, for the final scenario, I think it's important that any any solo investigator could theoretically accomplish it. Mm. And uh, particularly because Dagon and Hydra are unkillable. Right, yeah. Having the fighters still have value in going and tangling with them. Right, I think is really important because the alternative is that your fighters are running away from the thing that they've bought their flamethrower or their typewriter to attack, and that yeah, that sort of doesn't feel fun. And I love, by the way, the damage overflowing from broods uh, on from Dagon and Hydra onto their broods. It actually really incentivizes you to go and fight Dagon and Hydra because you can kill other enemies as a result. Which, yeah, we had our Nathaniel character was going and punching Hydra to, like, deal with broods of Hydra that were chasing us. It was, yeah, really cool. The map size changes in this one when you enter Yahanthli based on player count. And it's probably the most considerable change up we've seen so far. You know, you make three different changes if you adjust for solo. Right. What prompted it? And is it something we might see again? So it was prompted mostly by the exact specific like task that you have to do, right? If it's like mm-hmm. unflood all locations, then obviously the more locations there are, the more you have to do. And there were other ways that we could have scaled that, but I found that like just scaling it based on the number of locations made the most sense. It was really like the only way that the scenario could work in solo, for example. Um, and it also mm-hmm. had like the nice side benefit that like, because the map gets smaller, it also connects more locations. Like in mm-hmm. one or two player, you have a better capability of running circles around the enemies. In yeah. three or four player, there's actually choke points where you could get stuck and have to get forced to confront enemies, mm-hmm. um, which also helps to balance like the team comp in three or four player. So yeah, it, it was definitely like something that made perfect sense for this particular scenario might we use it again in the future? Sure, we might. Um, I don't see it being like a common scaling mechanic, mm. but if any time that there's a scenario where like the thing that you have to do is spread across a, a big map, um, it would make sense if for solo players, uh, especially the map is smaller. That's especially true because like there's no test you can do to just go faster. It's always like yeah. move for an action, move for an action, move for an action. So if you're moving all the way across the map and you've got four sanctums that you have to unflood and like all this other stuff that you have to do and all of these objectives are scattered all over the place, if you're if all you're doing is moving, then you don't really feel like you're able to take advantage of your investigator's abilities because you're yeah. just like three actions to move. Yeah. All right, next turn. Two more actions to move, you know? Yeah, that's where stuff like the mantle becomes so key while it's still flooded because you're like, okay, I can right. swoop yeah. along a little bit further and do something else or whatever it is. Yeah, in in three or four player, you can split up pretty easily, but in solo uh, or two yeah. player, you're a bit more stuck. Yeah. 
And I think I was interested as well, because as I said, you know, the, the sort of the Devil Reef gripe is around like covering that ground in solo. And sure. yeah. it's really interesting to see within one campaign that there is a tweak for, <laughs> for lower player counts later on. And I yeah. think hearing that justification about, well, it's not just about the size of the map. It's also about what you need to do and how much you're expected to interact with those locations maybe is is a good thing to bear in mind, I suppose. Yeah, and for Devil Reef, I think that like there's a bit more... It's a bit more okay that you can't cover all the ground as easily as a solo player because worst case scenario, you just don't recover as many relics. It's yeah. not like you lost the campaign because of it or, <laughs> yeah, you know, that true. it's not... Yeah, it's just like maybe you only got one or two and you feel like, oh, I wish I had brought a bigger crew so that I could get all three of them or something. That's not a terrible feeling to have. But for this one, it's very much like, no, it definitely has to scale in a, in a way that's a that feeling afterwards obvious. of, oh, it's, it's impossible in solo, it's too big, or it just takes too many actions. That's not a feeling that one likes to have at the end of a scenario. Yeah, yeah. And, and Devil's Reef, even with Devil's Reef, I mean, the most that you have to move in Devil's Reef to get out of a place is like maybe a couple moves to get to, yeah, to, to get out boat, of a cave, yeah. one hop onto a boat, and then a move to go to another island, you know? Uh, or two moves if you're if you're going through the ocean first. It's the unrevealed, yeah. 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 But in Into the Maelstrom, if you were doing like the full map, you could be running for like two, three full rounds to get from like one place <laughs> to another. Because it's a big map. Yeah. And I've seen you know, in the four player map as well, it's all basically single corridors. Yes. Yeah. So like in solo navigating uh, an angry Hydra and an angry Dagon. <laughs> is yeah, especially with two bosses. When you're outnumbered by bosses, yeah, like, yeah. you need that ability to maneuver around them. Otherwise, you're just hosed. If it was just one boss, that might have been a little different. But with two, like for sure. If they both catch you, yeah. you're just toast, you know? It gets nasty. So we, we alluded to this earlier about the betrayal, if we want to call it that, or really just the other conspiracy. The reveal, yeah, the reveal. Yeah, the sort of the agency conspiracy. And then we get this really cool little branch of, well, do you want to help them or not? And if right. so, suddenly our our objective also doubles. So there's like a nice little mirroring <laughs> there of the double double bosses. Yeah, yeah. And you can, and you can accomplish one or the other or both. Yeah, yeah, a lot of choice. Yeah, can you tell us a bit about the sort of the choice of putting putting that surprise reveal in at the end? And yeah, yeah, it was kind of so. Uh, right from the get go, I knew that there was going to be something like that at the end because I wasn't going to call it the Innsmouth conspiracy and there not be some kind of conspiracy going on <laughs> uh, beyond what just the deep ones are trying to accomplish. I really like this idea that it was in the end something actually rather mundane that they were just after wealth because i think that that's yeah. like really indicative of like how how far humans are willing to go to like mess everything up for money <laughs> <laughs> and and not just like for personal gain but like the government you know so i thought that was kind of cool and i thought it would provide a a nice enough backdrop that you might be like oh well i'm obviously not helping them with that i hate harper now blah 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 blah, blah. or you might be like I still really like Harper as a character, and she didn't actually do anything to hurt us, so let's help her out, you know? And then we get to keep her, because she's really good. <laughs> yeah, if you're a rogue, you're like, wealth, yeah, sign right. me up. Right, yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, and you can even roleplay it 
a little bit, like accordingly to your character, which I always think think is fun. I think it works really well to to have an immediate impact on the scenario in terms of like how do we actually end this now? It's yeah. like the dilemma is current and you need to pick a side and, and decide how do we finish this. Yeah, and I like the um like everybody when you talk about the shadow over Innsmith and you do an Innsmith story, everyone's immediate instinct is, okay, who's the secret deep one? <laughs> right? Yeah, like, yeah. who's going to be the secret deep one? Is it is it Harper? Is Harper a secret deep one? Am I a secret deep one? Someone's got to be a secret deep one. So the, the idea that no one's a secret deep one is probably the biggest twist I could have possibly done when everyone's expecting there to be one. Mm-hmm. I didn't want, yeah. and I didn't want to rely on the crutch of using the same exact twist from the original source material, and instead do something new, do like a new spin on things, especially when almost every other Innsmith story ever written involves you being a secret deep one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and secret deep one comes with its own baggage as well that we don't need to go into here. But, right? Yeah, 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 of yeah. course. Yeah, that brings us to the end of. Another fantastic campaign. Um, Peter mentioned earlier about really looking forward to diving back into it. The same for me. My cursed Leo is ready to to take it on. I think for me, the like remaining thought I really have is just about how the flashbacks add so much. Like they're kind of like achievements, I suppose. There's so yeah, much sort of stretch yeah. goals for the players that leave me really keen to go back and try and do more. And I like that they don't actually have. I mean, they have one big impact about the epilogue, but other than that, right. not getting a flashback doesn't normally mean you miss out on loads of XP. It can be a bit of XP, but it doesn't feel like you're doing badly if you're not getting all the flashbacks, which I think yeah. is really important for sort of replayability. We wanted to balance them in such a way that you would get maybe five to ten of them in your first playthrough yeah. and might have to play it two or three times to get all of them. Mm. Mm-hmm. I, I remember getting the... Because you get a plus one... Is that in the f- one of the first few scenarios, certainly? That's in too deep, yeah. Yeah, and I oh, just the plus remember one's it okay. happening. Yeah. yeah, like, can she do this? Can she, can she put another plus one in the back? <laughs> that seems yeah. just against all of the rules. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that it, it blew my mind, that. And I, I, I really loved how they worked through, through, the, through the campaign as well. Like, giving players something to... to like Frank says, like a stretch goal that's not just getting more VPs um, or, or maybe isn't it doesn't need as much designing as a story asset. Yeah. And my, my favourite ones are the ones that like actually affect the flow of the scenario in an, in an almost kind of cryptic way mm-hmm. where it's like, because you found this, this thing will become a plot point now. That it wasn't yeah. a plot point before, but because you're aware of it, now it's a plot point. Yeah, particularly going into into the maelstrom where it mm. says do you have a map wait when did i when was i meant to get a map do you have a key mm. i don't think i have that does the does Yehantli recognize you as the true uh, <laughs> and you're like what you yeah, know what? so there's sort of things that are the more complicated ones to get that yeah that yeah those were fun winking at you yeah we, we played uh, beneath nightmare castle the the fighting fantasy book on stream frank Mm. And there's, a, I, I don't know whether we got to it, but there's a bit where it says, oh, have you got the trident of Scarlax or something? And you're like, okay, <laughs> what's a Scarlax? <laughs> what, what's, why has he got a trident? Why does he have a trident? <laughs> yeah, yeah, what's going on here? That's cool. 
So yeah, I'm congratulations glad, glad you like Thank um, you. to you, to Jeremy, to Duke. It sounds like he got a lot out of interning at FFG as well. For sure. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> um, on a great scenario. Thank you. A great campaign, rather, the scenario. So let's turn really briefly, and I know we've gone long, so we'll keep it brief, to the next campaign. Luckily, we know what it is. It's Edge of the Earth. We're going to Antarctica, yeah. so we should I'm wrap so up warm. <laughs> what books should we read or films should we watch to get us in the mood for the Edge of the Earth? Yeah, so, I mean, definitely at the Mountains of Madness. That's, like, the obvious one. Mm-hmm. Edge of the Earth is similar to the Dunwich Legacy in that it's like a sequel to ah. the original source material. So there's a bit of catch up in the prologue if you've never read At the Mountains of Madness that like kind of tells you a little bit of what happened. Not everything, it just gives you some kind of hints into what happened. And now you are heading back to Antarctica along with the two survivors from At the Mountains of Madness. And yeah, it has a little bit of an aliens feel. Right? Where Ripley's like, why am I heading back into yeah. this place? You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. I think Aliens is actually a pretty good um, movie to watch to get in the mood. Um, one of the big things with Edge of the Earth is there's this expedition team. They're really like central to the to the plot and to the feel, the tone of the campaign. Mm-hmm. There's, uh, I think I mentioned this before, but like there's a lot more dialogue in this campaign because I really want you to get to know these characters and they all have like interpersonal relationships. They all feel differently about one another. And you don't get to see all of that in every playthrough. So each time you play, you're learning a little bit more about them. And and then you watch, you know, in horror as they get picked off one by one. That's kind of like the idea. So Or betray movie, you. Or betray you. Or betray yeah. you. Sure. Yeah. I'm ready this time. Yeah. So like any horror movie with a big cast, I think. Is yeah. a is a good is probably a good something uh, to watch for the tone. Um, it's one of the reasons I I like Aliens because you you see all these characters and you get to meet them and they're really confident and ready. And then you know, yeah. And you taking the role of Ripley, like, oh, this is such a bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm definitely going to be watching the thing. The thing is, yeah, the thing is another very good one. Edge of the Earth doesn't really have the same like. Paranoia. social deduction mini game yeah, yeah that yeah. the thing has but i think that the the way that the characters all interact with one another and obviously the uh the environment yeah for sure yeah I, i'm really excited i think i i'm excited to see what what, what uh, you and, and the team do with uh being uh unshackled i guess from the distribution method i, I know there's this stuff i've always thought was a shame you don't get a proper branching narrative to an extent. Um, you right. can't like entirely miss a scenario, really. I mean, you can do like when we did um, Boundary Beyond uh, into um, Heart of the Elders. There's like a you can sort of skip something there, but you still right. have to have a mythos pack with a scenario in it. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. We don't want we don't want you to we don't want to encourage you to not buy a product that we're selling. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> we want to do the opposite. <laughs> Yeah, we did really yeah. well on the last one, so I don't need to buy the, the next Mythos pack. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. So, so there's stuff like that. I'm, I'm, I'm excited to see how um, that's worked into the campaign. And I, I know yeah, there's yeah. been hints of hints dropped that you will have a proper branching narrative here. Yeah, well, so Edge of the Earth, I wouldn't... Hmm, I'm not sure I'd call it branching. It has different permutations, for sure. Right. Oh, um, okay, but it, 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 is, it is essentially a linear story. 
with bits that you can skip or vary depending on um, decisions that you make and optional choices and stuff. And there's also like a weird scenario that is like not part of the linear narrative that can like show up. Uh, And there's also some of the scenarios are really, really big and Mm. are split up into uh, like part one, part two, part three, that kind of thing. The, so, yeah, the announcement it's, article it's, mentioned it's cool. checkpoints. Is that is that yes, kind of what you mean? Yeah, though? that's what the yeah. checkpoints are. Yeah. So, and you might not you might not play through all of those parts every time you play. So, all in all, the 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 campaign can take you anywhere between four and ten like game sessions, uh, depending on wow. a number of factors. Um, and that's yeah, that's the kind of thing we could never really do before. And the stuff that mm. we're working on after that is even more uh, crazy. So. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm really excited. I mean, I, I've said for a while that the it, it's almost like a relic of of how um, LCGs have been always done, and you know, to an extent, limitations like that like that do breed creative creativity as you find ways yes. around the limitations. Yeah, there's some scenarios I I, I do want to I, I want to touch on that for a second. There's some scenarios we never would have done if we didn't have the eight mythos pack model, mm-hmm. and. Some of those scenarios, like, I think would have been a huge shame if we hadn't done them. Um, yeah. I'm thinking any scenario that doesn't, like, explicitly tie into the basic plot structure of a campaign. Like, take Essex County Express. As, yeah, right? I was about to say, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's a perfect example of a scenario that's just like, all right, like, what would be a cool thing that we could do in between this and this? And it's like, yeah, you're on a train and, and stuff goes wrong. Um, but that's a fantastic scenario. Very yeah, it's memorable. one of the most memorable. Yeah, I think yeah. most people remember that. Yeah. Exactly. So yeah, I, you're right. To a certain extent, it did breed uh, creativity. Um, but you know, we're five years into the game now, so I think it makes sense to to uh, transition to this kind of model where we can really do all kinds of different types of narrative that we couldn't do before. So, so my immediate assumption was that if you've got, say, a group of players you you regularly play with, actually, it it kind of makes sense where one person can keep the scenario cards and everyone else can get the player cards. Yes, uh, and that's yeah. where my head went to initially. But actually, speaking to some players who dabble more with the game rather than Frank and I, who <laughs> a bit more committed, right? They're actually looking forward to being in a position where they've got a lot of player cards they've never used, but they right. want some more story to to have a shot at as well. Or just here's a box with some story in it. I can buy that, pick it up, and then we've got decks we can play through it. So I think that that's really it, it's it's really exciting in my opinion. I'm just really hyped to see to, to get my hands on everything and see how it plays. Me too. Yeah, I'm just really excited when I heard you say you should see what's coming after this. And oh gosh, that idea of like what we know of you as a designer is that you <laughs> took the Mythos Pack model and you've pushed it to its limits in terms of what you can fit in. And it's like, so what are you going to do with this? Whatever we want to call this model, the the big box model. Yeah, you're probably going to go crazy. In it's a good way, yeah. Maxine, <laughs> yeah. Maxine jumping the shark at this point. <laughs> yeah, Edge of the Earth was very challenging for a number of reasons. Mm. Being the first product that we've ever done in this new model, um, the first product I've ever worked on from home, you know, with pandemic going on and all of this other stuff in my life personally, it's just like it was mm. a very, very stressful <laughs> time. Yeah, but what's gotten me through all of it is the knowledge that there's so much more cool stuff that I can do with this model now. Yeah. So I'm, I'm really excited. That's, oh, that's cool to hear. And hopefully it's not something where you're just like 
I'm just desperate to see the back of this. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's all of our questions. Uh, Maxine, I don't know whether you've got anything else, you know, you think we haven't asked or anything else in particular you want to share either about um, this product or upcoming products. Um, all I can say is um, stay tuned to the website. It's still June. Yes. There, there is still more um, that might be revealed for the Ooh. Arkham Files. That's that's an incredible tease. <laughs> yeah, my eyes just went boom open. Back to the website I go. <laughs> well, I I don't know if you've seen, but we've been tweeting something kind of cryptic. Yes, I've yeah. seen. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Did you have a hand in that thing? I'll I'll let you uh, I'll let you stew on that. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. So yeah, this is the point of the episode where we come to the end. As ever, you can get in touch with us on Drawn to the Flame podcast at gmail.com and we're Drawn to the Flame around the place. This episode has gone long, so we won't do our normal sign-offs. <laughs> Maxine, people can get in touch with you if they contact FFG. That's the uh, easiest yeah. way. Yeah, so, I mean, if you're looking for, like, rules questions, that's the easiest way. You can go on our website, go on our support page. But also, yeah, if you just want to stay up to date with the stuff that I'm working on, uh, mm-hmm. You can follow me on Twitter. My Twitter is uh, uh, at Natsuno Yoru, which is N-A-T-S-U-N-O-Y-O-R-U. Boy, do I wish I had made I heard the little sign as you yeah. started to sell it. Yeah. <laughs> it's Japanese. <laughs> but you can also check out my website, uh, which is a lot easier to remember, www.bewaretheblackcat.com. And you post quite a bit of... Uh, Arkham Horror LCG design stuff on there yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah, I do. I have like a blog there that talks about video games, it talks about Arkham, and it talks about Dark Drifters, which is my novel series. And on the website is also like my portfolio that has all the projects that I've worked on and a store where you can get my book. So check it out. Go buy the book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. good, I swear. So yeah, all that remains is for us to say thank you so much for joining us yet again on the cast. It's really uh, an honor to have you on the cast oh, and thank for you. sharing your time and your insights so generously. So yeah, I, It's always a pleasure. Always a pleasure to be on. Thank you. Well, thank you for your time. Thanks for listening. Yeah. It's me, Peter. Hello, Frank. Hi, Peter. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Frank, I've just realised my audio seems to be very loud when I'm getting excited. Okay. <laughs> so I just want to tweak it down a tiny touch so I'm not That's cool. redlining all the way through. Okay. That's better. Yes. Hello. I'm excited. There we go. <laughs> right. <laughs> you can keep that in the bloopers. <laughs> I will keep that in the bloopers. <laughs>